This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Cavendish Experience is sponsored and brought to you by Cavendish HR. At Cavendish HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people while automating HR products and services while providing you access to a dedicated HR business partner. Here at Cavendish HR, we're currently providing employee handbooks and HR policies at no cost to companies with 49 or fewer people in the city of Seattle. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cabinets Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Guest today is Sean Robinson. Sean, thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's going to be great. So, Sean, so I'm going to start off with a softball question. Yeah. I think it should be a softball question. What, what, are your, what do you do for fun? Oh, gosh. Um, so this has changed a lot over the course of my life. Right now, I'm doing a lot of rock climbing. Actually, uh, someone who's a good friend now was my, uh, was my PM company where I was the head of data science. Um, is an avid rock climber, um, fairly, uh, you know, fairly old for a PM. He does a great job, and he sort of, uh, sort of suckered me into it at one point. Just come on, come a few times. And I, I went with him, and I had done bouldering before, and I had done impromptu climbing of like, you know, scrambles and things you do in stores. But I hadn't really done like proper sport high wall stuff. And I got on a wall, and he was belaying me. And I got about halfway up, and I went, oh, now I get it. Because I looked down and I realized that my awareness had just shrunk to a point because my, whatever, limbic system told me I was going to fall and die. And I was like, this is like, this is like, uh, this is like fighting. This is like heavy sparring in the ring or whatever. Uh, another thing from my background. And I went, oh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a turnoff switch. It turns everything else off and it just brings you into the moment. And I was hooked from that moment on. I've been, so I've been doing rock climbing in that way since a year and a half now. And do you also do outdoor climbing and anything like, like ice climbing in the mountains, things like that? I haven't done proper outdoor like sport or trad climbing yet. And uh, part of that is just my own concern for holding up the group. Um, the guy in question um, is really good. And uh, a bunch of folks over at the gym that I climb with are really good. And they go outside. And I'm concerned that I'll be like, you know, the, the, the anchor that holds everyone back. So I think maybe, you know. Another half a year. Maybe this season if I get ambitious. And how long have you been doing this? Uh, like a year and a half. But I did, you know, uh, aspects of this before. I mean, I was a gymnast at a young age um, for a while. And did parkour for a while. And so climbing wasn't foreign. Uh, but it felt like a different dialect of the same language. So I was kind of still not good. And I'm still not good. You know, specific, like, vertical wall climbing is its own beast. Um, but it's worth trying. And especially if you, like, kind of physical outdoorsy type of stuff it's a it's, i don't know it's a good time i could be wrong but if you dig parkour or outdoor rock climbing it should be a piece of cake to you because parkour don't you like jump off buildings and slam the walls and do flips and stuff well okay i was never quite that good <laughs> the well the thing is the stuff you see online is actually absolutely the peak of that sport and often it's sort of arranged um but sort of you know normally i don't think i would uh i don't think i'd be willing to jump from a building to another where, like, the consequence was definite death. Unless they were, like, this close together. Unless right? they were real close. <laughs> Unless you, if you could chimney it, I would do it. And, uh, and I, I definitely chimney up a lot of stuff. But, um, 
Yeah, but no, it's uh, it's surprisingly different. The the sort of um, it's a different dynamism. Um, with a lot of parkour stuff, you'd like, well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go for that wall, and I'm gonna vault it, and I'm gonna vault the next thing, and the next thing I'll get on top, and then I'm gonna jump off of it. And the idea is this sort of flow, where nothing slows you down. Um, whereas, whereas rock climbing, very meticulous, or at least it is for me. The idea is still flow, hey, but it's, it's like yeah, a, pretty precise, right? I mean, because one yeah. small mistake, it's like you're costing people lives. Maybe if you're out doing outdoors, right? Yeah, you have to. Well, how to put it? Modern equipment is really good, and modern practices are really good so i think at this point i wouldn't be i wouldn't be concerned going out with a bunch of uh climbers who've done this before that like really my safety would be on the line necessarily um but it's still quite difficult i don't know there's 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 a bunch of that stuff where like climbing still is to get the flow but yeah there are things that i didn't realize on the way in that i hadn't done in gymnastics or parkour or any of that other stuff um one is and this is if you put on cl climbing shoes before, they're like really tight. And there's sort of this rubber wrap around your foot. And a lot of that, well, obviously friction, but, uh, but a lot of that is designed for you to be able to basically stand on one toe, specifically your big toe. There's a lot of this where as things get harder, the footholds get smaller. <laughs> and it, and it, you know, at some point, it's like literally, it's like half the size of a toe. And you basically need to cram your big toe and nothing else really fits on it on there and then put your whole weight there while you essentially try and hug the wall and go up higher. Anyway, so it's, um, it's interesting because I didn't see that coming. And when I, all of my normal uh, reflexes were wrong, you know, I, I wanted to essentially like put a heel or a side of a foot or the side of the ball of the foot on these things. And that worked for the easy stuff. And then as stuff gets harder and like holds get sparser and smaller, the only thing you can really do is sort of this, the traditional climbing technique, which is much more like toe focused. Anyway, so it's interesting because it felt to me like there was a lot of cross-training, and there was, but then the higher levels of stuff really required their own. And I say higher levels like I'm good. I'm not, still not good. I don't know if anyone, if you're familiar with the grades, but I'll do like a 5.9 all day and like maybe a 5.10 on a good day. So, eh, you know, neither horrible nor good in any way. Yeah, so you said about a lot of the parkour stage, so... I follow like a lot of different people on TikTok, right? One person I follow is actually a parkour mm -hmm. person. Parkour, how you say? She's a female, and mm -hmm. she always posts videos and doing stuff, right? And someone put a comment video like, man, you're such a great person doing this so naturally. She said, well, actually, let me tell you the truth. She did the background video of one of her parkour things. Mm -hmm. She did like, she scaled like three or four different buildings, right? But she actually fell like six, seven times, you know? Of course, they cut it out, you know, because it's, it's like rainy and slippery, you know? So a lot of this stage, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's... um. Yeah, and there's a lot of that stuff in there. I um, I used to say that I had, this was a joke, but I used to say that skateboarding wasn't real. Um, now I've seen otherwise. But for a while, my entire data set was you would go online and there would be skateboarding videos of people doing these amazing tricks. And there would be competitions where people, at least in the cut together portions, were doing these amazing you know, sequences of tricks. And then you would go to the park. And in the park, no one had ever landed a trick. And I watched... I think a cumulative, like every time for a while it became a thing. I was trying to prove this. I would go to, like every time I'd walk by a park or when I was in grad school, there were a bunch of people doing this on stairs and stuff and see and watch people try to do tricks and fail. And I watched like 150 attempts with not a single success. So I kept on saying like statistically skateboarding isn't real. Anyway, it, it is real. I've seen people in real life land stuff, but it's so much harder than they make it look. Yeah, and that's why people like Tony Hawk and Rob, the other guy, the top 1% make all those millions of dollars, you know? 
Yeah, the ability to to make that consistent has got to be nuts. I mean, just yeah. Anyway, my my thing is like when you fall, like you're falling on cement, you fall on some kind of rail. It's like that has to hurt. Like I don't care how much padding you have on, you know. Like yeah, that has to hurt. Yeah, I don't. The uh, the whatever I would call them, okay, me, the the break falls type mm. stuff off of that is so hard. Um, it's weird because some of the like occasionally climbing and parkour. The break falls are at least obvious. It's like you jump for a thing, you missed a thing, so now your feet are going to hit and slide down the thing. So the next thing to do is like put your hands on it and then try and mantle back up onto the thing. And that's obvious, but like if you're skateboarding and now you're falling towards a rail, but you're also stuck on a plank that's, <laughs> then, going, that's then going a direction you don't know <laughs> that's which. That's not a good place to be at. Like I have no idea what the, um, what the praxis of controlled falls even looks like. I think you have on robust pads and you do your best but i i, I gotta ask someone who's uh who's good at skateboarding i'll be interested what the break falls i'm interested like. to see this though those are always these stats like football players getting hurt like i would see the stats of skateboarders like what percentage of skateboarders have broken ankles you know concussions on the things like that out there maybe that is of course, of course x game six is a whole different level right um, like the stuff they do is like just insane i i don't know i'm shocked at anyone who can take take any one of these like highly specific things, do it at a professional level. And, you know, by professional, I mean either competition or sort of to the point where it's entertainment and inspiration for others. Like I met, um, met I've been, I mean, worked with another good data scientist who was and is an avid downhill mountain biker, like serious guy. He's like doing this every weekend. And, um, and he said he tried skateboarding and skateboarding tricks and they're like impossible. I'm like, but you've been like falling off of mountains on a bike at, you know, like, who knows how fast over rocks and haven't broken a collarbone and you're fine. And this happens every weekend and you get on a skateboard, you still can't do it. Anyway, I don't know <laughs> if anybody out there is a good, is a good skateboarder, huge respect to you for having made that work. So when you first started rock climbing a year and a half ago, did you have to like, get yourself in shape? Like, do you have like, like um, do work, like you had like workout first and get in shape to do it? Or you just jumped into it or. Well, it felt like its own its own thing. I mean, the, the gentleman who got me into it basically said he was 30 pounds heavier than he wanted to be and not as strong as he wanted to be and his health was so-so. And then climbing alone basically did it for him. It just, but he's, you know, he does it three times a week and just said, this is, you know, th this, is a, this is a lifelong thing now. It did it for me. It's all that I need, basically. I feel like I'm much more of a cross-training person, um, but it was more inspiration to work on myself and it's still very much a work in progress still probably 20 up from we like to be but um so it can be its own thing um i don't know <laughs> take that as you will i guess you could go either way but next let's talk about live action role play or larp oh yeah how, how do you get involved with that so so when i first saw larp on the bio i didn't know what it is i look it up and i saw i know what it was right yeah. So when I see it, I, I just think of like medieval, like like Civil War reenactments, um, medieval that thing. But it's actually like a lot of it's like a Comic Con stuff. Like it could be pretty mm. much anything. Where you could have Star Wars battle, just role playing, mm. right? Yeah, no, this is this is a fascinating world to me, even being part of it. So um, I like to think if you know if if I could consider Dungeons and Dragons or Comic Con or whatever, it's like a gateway drug. That there are, there are harder like things beyond that. That nerd curtain, and and LARP is one of them. That, you, you said that. Yeah. You said that nerd award, not me. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the nerd curtain is. Yeah, it's, um, but um, 
LARP is basically a catch-all term, although I have to be careful saying that because everybody wouldn't agree with me. So, like, from the, from the widest view, there are a bunch of different groups who sort of care about a bunch of different things. So there's, like, the, society, the SCA, people have probably heard of the Society for Creative Anachronism, are semi-historical. People might be saying semi because some people take it very seriously. So you, everywhere from people who like the idea of knights and want to have armor and participate in a tournament and have fun, all the way through to people who specifically know about like 16th century French garb and the court then, and really want to be, you know, like enacting and, you know, highly knowledgeable about, uh, about those, you know, people who essentially have done an impromptu, like PhD level thing and dissertation on it. Um, and all of those people sort of live in the same set of events. Um, I think that's that and, and, and medieval reenactors, who I think the SCA sort of counts as, um, are very much kind of in the, the hardcore realism camp, mostly. And then it gets, essentially then if you, um, the middle of the road uh, tends to be what I think of as like swords and sorcery LARP. So these are the people that you think of as like throwing lightning bolts at each other and having foam swords and like maybe fake armor and magic exists and there might be dragons or there might not, or it might not be medieval at all. It might be, you know, near future cyberpunk or after an apocalypse or whatever people have sort of thought up. And this is like what happens if you do tabletop role playing and then you like it so much that you think, well, why don't we just go and like act this out? This I think, I have a theory about when people started to do this, and I'm probably wrong, um, but this happened to me once when I was in graduate school. So we were playing a, um, we were playing a campaign. Um, the guy I knew, uh, also in graduate school, was sort of storytelling, and it was a White Wolf campaign, which, if you're familiar with those, are the ones that have uh, Vampire the Masquerade, um, all of the other characters. They have a werewolf game and so forth. So we were playing a vampire game, and it was on the edge of being acted out. You know, if, if somebody had to go off and do some kind of scene, this person would take that person out of the room and do the scene just with them individually so they had to come back and explain to everyone else what had happened. So everyone was kind of really seeing a different world. People started to wear, like, bits of maybe costuming and act things out a little bit. And it just felt like, oh, the more we do this, the more real it feels, like, the better it feels. So there's a bunch of that stuff. Um, under Red Square, I think this game has died. There was a Vampire the Masquerade white wolf larp that happened for i want to say like 20 years and i was in it from in my grad school era so like two, 1999 through 2003 or four and and that's maybe the um i want to say the lightest and fluffiest larp but there's no contact in it and it is entirely magical you know they're, they're you're pretending to basically be vampires as envisioned by white wolf as sort of Swiped from various vampire, you know, uh, materials. So anyway, so so that's kind of it. You have people that are super hardcore at one end that just, you know, I care about history. I want to know what sort of food people ate in the Renaissance, and we want to do that all the way over to like, look, I I want to play. I want to be like a werewolf and have my werewolf pack, and we're going to act out doing cool werewolf things. And reality doesn't really matter, and we have this set of rules, but it's just sort of, it's just sort of there to hang the game on. Um, that might have been too long-winded. I don't know. But that's, but that's kind of the world. And the centroid of, of my experience is kind of the middle group. So, yeah, getting into that was a 
matter of playing a bunch of Dungeons and Dragons, then finding that LARP existed and kind of getting dragged into that vampire one I talked about. Um, and now I'm involved in a few of them. Um, some friends that I know have a, uh, have a sort of LARP site that they purchased, which is a big piece of land down near Centralia uh, that they have them all at. And yeah, so it's uh, nowadays I tend to be um, NPCs more than anything. Because you still have to have a story, which means someone has to go and act on the players. So th there needs to be someone who's, you know, an aggrieved townsperson one minute and then leaves and comes back and is a goblin and then leaves and comes back and is like part of a dragon. And so I do all of that. That's the sort of latest thing. So have you always just been a participant or have you ever been part of the team that put all the, the event together? I think the closest that I've been is that last, that, that, that you know, people still need... People who are not explicitly players, but who are playing roles that help the world go. Um, that's kind of where I am now. I thought and have had some overtures to like go and be more storytelling and on the team, but it is a tremendous amount of work, and I've never really thought that I had enough time to devote to it outside of my other things. I mean, this is um, you know, I know people who who work who work this basically like a second, at least like a part time second job. Um, so much, so much love goes into these things, you know, like weekly meetings and lots of writing and so forth. I've made a couple of AI things to help to help stories go and whatever, which is normally like niche stuff, like creating player stories. Um, but uh, that I guess that's that's as close as I've gotten to being part of that team. Is I've written some technical things that in, in the modern age have helped them go and like saved people hours of work from having to write it themselves. So you probably don't know this, but what happens is like suppose there's a I use Star Wars, suppose there's a Star Wars LARP, right? Mm. And, and and there's of course there's Darth Vader. Pose like mm. five people like I want to be Darth Vader. Do like you say, yeah. we'll, we'll give Darth Vader who whoever pays the most money, or like how do they decide like the roles, right? You know that. Yeah. Um this is interesting and it's a matter, it's a matter really a matter of internal politics. So I've seen every answer to this question. There are there are times, and these are I think less socially healthy, when People who are putting the most time in, who are kind of the, the leaders of or whatever, um, just, you know, declare these things by fiat. They're basically like, oh, okay, well, somebody really wanted to be a super wizard, and so I'm just going to let them do it, but only they can do it. It's tough because it tends to breed negative feelings. Just do it that way. Uh, the games that I've seen, what they tend to do is to have some other kind of currency that's meant to stand in for the amount that you're familiar with or have put into the game. So the, um, the games that I'm working with right now are, are uh, they, use, uh, they use a thing called Glory, which is like you accumulate a little bit of this for coming to game. You accumulate a little bit more if you like help out with things or like if you help clean up the site. And it's, not, it's never really large amounts. The idea is that over time you sort of accumulate this and then you can buy weird concepts with it like that. Like if somebody, yeah, if, so, if, if, it, if it was... Yeah, to translate to, to your analogy there, like if it was a Star Wars thing and somebody's like, well, I want to be a dark Jedi or I want to be this particular character, um, then the people in charge would go like, okay, well, you can do that, but we can't have like five Darth Vaders running around. It'll break everything. Um, so you can do it, but it's going to like cost this, this glory cost, which essentially just means you have to be around a while and like do something else so that we can kind of see how you're playing. And that, that actually leads me into a theory that I had about gaming that might be useful um, for solving this sort of thing. So when I first, um, 
was the storyteller. I wrote a sort of vampire and, and mage game, again, White Wolf System. Um, oh, so it must be like 12, 15 years ago now. Um, and I, it was tabletop. It wasn't a LARP. It was just um, we were all going to get together. And I had this story that was kind of a tale of two cities kind of rip off and you know, a, a bunch of intrigue. And, um, and before we started, I set all the players down. I basically said, okay, well, first, tell me a story. Just open-ended. It's not going to be points yet. Just tell me a story about who your character is, where they come from, what was their background, what was the worst thing they ever did, what was the best thing they ever did, was there anybody they really cared about, where is that person now, just all this stuff. And then, and that was useful to make characters and to figure out what the story hook is. But um, I also then sat down, and at the time, I thought this was a throwaway question. I was like, well, what, what, why are you here? Like, is it just because we're friends? Are we just playing a game because we want something to do? If if you're here for like another reason, what is it? Like, what can how, what could I do to make this fun? And I expected there to be a random stack of answers, but what I found and what I've found since then is that there were roughly three, and, and I call this the Bilbo Batman Deadpool theory of gaming. So, but you already kind of know what it is, right? I almost don't have to explain Bilbo Batman Deadpool. The point is that there's roughly three sorts of fun that people keep, and, and you can have more than one, but like there's roughly three sorts of fun that people feel are fun in this sort of environment. The one where you're sort of underpowered and unsure, and you're doing your best against really big odds, and you might not make it, and if you do, it's a really big win, right? It feels great because like you outsmarted the thing, or like your team came together, the power of friendship, whatever. Um, and it's the sort of Bilbo character. Um, Batman... And I've met a bunch of people who are Batman players um, want to have a thing for everything and never lose. They would be very unhappy if they lost and like everybody died. The dragon just ate them. You know, th th this doesn't like stand up to the story. The story is that they're the hero and that's fine. Um, and in general, they want to never be flat footed, which is almost the opposite, but not quite the opposite of the, uh, of the Bilbo character. Um, and the Deadpool character just is cognizant that they're playing a game and that the stakes are therefore not life and death. And never comes off that point. So this is the person who, every the canonical everybody meets in the tavern, right? And then, um, you know, there's a wizard in the corner, and the wizard like says, "I'll give you whatever this gem if you go defeat the thing." You know, the, the sort of classic whatever. The adventure starts, and someone is like, "I try and seduce the wizard," or like, "I go and start a bar fight randomly." Um, and usually, if there's only one of these people, everyone else just looks at them like. But why, why did you do that? That's not real. It's not what a real person would do. Um, and the answer is because on some sense, if you knew that you were playing a game, if you had put on a VR headset before this and you still had the memory of that happening, um, you'd be kind of unhinged in that world. As evidenced by people, you know, people's interactions with real VR worlds, right? They do crazy stuff, but just jump off a bridge because I know I'm not really going to die. And so what I learned was all of those were real fun. None of those is like not a real thing, and none of those is something you shouldn't have fun doing, but they don't necessarily play that well together. Um, and I, I really had to work on this. Um, it's actually often okay to have like one Deadpoolish character, and as long as they kind of rein it in a little bit, it can be fun. But you have to know that and, and like sort of provide situations for that to play well. It is hard to play like Bilbo's and Batman's together because of this fundamental breach where like the Bilbo character really wants to be underpowered and confused. That's where drama comes from. 
I see one world, you see another, we disagree, there's inter-party drama, but at the same time, something's attacking us. All of that chaos. And the Batman character wants to win. They want to, like, un have us all in, like, a phalanx that's unstoppable when the thing comes and we all fight together and we all, like, victory was never in question. We're, we're the best. And those are really hard to resolve. So, in the first game that I ever story told, I kind of came up with this theory and I said, well, I don't know, we'll see. And, but anyway, the tension seems to be along those lines. And with a LARP, it's tough because there are maybe, you know, at a good LARP, there might be 100 people. That's maybe an exaggeration. You'll see ones that are, that are much more like 20. Um, and somewhere in between is where a lot of things fall. But so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, anyway, the theory, the theory is very difficult if you have lots of players because you will have lots of types of fun on the field. And the people that I know who have been successful at this try to find a way that everybody has fun and doesn't conflict. And there's no one answer. So it's a constant struggle. People work really hard. Um, and while I kind of have my thousand yard theories like this, I haven't put my hand into the process enough to really try and guide that. One thing I would like to find out is like, like how many people like do this LARP? They're doing like, man, this is a lot of fun. I'm actually good at this. And that, you know, let me go try to be a do theater or acting, right? Or like be an extra in movies. I wonder how many people are like, man, this is, I'm actually good at this, right? Let me go try to do this as a career. Oh, that's a good question. I should actually ask. I mean, I'm close enough to that community to kind of start asking people. I, I think people have come the other way as well, where it's mm -hmm. like, well, you know, in college I did some acting, liked it, couldn't make it a career, but this is my outlet to do that. Yeah. I think I assume community theater would have a lot of the same sorts yeah, of folks. Yeah, that's yeah, a good point. You have a community theater, yeah. Yeah, and I, my my limited understanding suggests that those that those people at least get along quite. Yeah, and so off subject, we're talking about the, the AR VR headsets. Like mm. someone posted this on on a social media like maybe a couple weeks ago, and it was like a thirty second video. It was like my mom tried a, a headset for the first time it was a disaster. So this mother had an AR VR set on, right, and she ran hundred miles an hour to the refrigerator. Oh yes. dear! Yes. Bam. Oh dear! Yeah, that is. It's a real issue. Yeah. Um. I thought it was kind of. Of course, it's not funny. I mean, yeah. And of course, it's like people like you know the older people like you know can't get our younger people like mastering it right. But yeah, it's almost like you need like a like a warning. You know, if you're above this age, you know these little dangers of like ARVR is not real. You know, but like this lady ran like a hundred miles an hour, right? Like is and is and she like bounced off the refrigerator, yeah. fell down. They're like, damn, yeah. She was like, she was running after something. Something was running after her. So it's it's interesting because in a sense, in a sense, that shows the promise of the technology. Not that we're all going to get injured, but but the fact that it would feel so quickly, so real, to allow that kind of like quasi limbic response to like maybe a threat or or, or something you wanted. I remember the first time. <laughs> this was way back. It's been 2015 or 2014. At the, at the dawn of the sort of second VR revolution, first ones in the 80s and 90s, um, and then we sort of dished it and came back with like the Vive, at the era of like the Vive one. Um, we had one at the National Lab where I was working, and it was kind of a toy. People were trying to use it for data visualizations and analytics things, but, all, but it came with a full suite of stuff. And I remember I did the first demo, the Vive demo that used to be you sitting on a, standing on, the, on like the bow of a ship that was sunk and you were in the ocean. And then a, um, a whale comes by and sort of waves its tail at you. And the canonical thing is everyone goes, 
you know, because it looks like it's maybe going to hit you. And so everyone really does this in real life. And that's that's the power of the demo. And I came away from it with two things, one of which is, yeah, this didn't feel like me going into a game at all. This felt like a place I was and then I came back from. And that is how my memory encoded it. And that's still basically true. I don't know if that's an idiosyncrasy of me or whether that's normal, but the, the, the concept of reality, it felt like if something is unreal past a certain point, your mind will push it into the realm of the unreal. You'll say, no, you know, I am, I'm only playing a game. And that allows you to bypass some internal, you know, internal brain mechanisms that would otherwise say there's a terrifying monster. You still are like afraid of imagery. But in some sense, you understand that you're sitting in a chair, you are looking at a square, and so forth. So this is the first thing that I took from that is, yeah, once you're, if you're unreal past a certain point, your mind says, yep, we are fully unreal. Don't worry about this too much. You can go to sleep after this. But if you cross past the uncanny valley to a certain point, even though it is still unreal relative to real reality, your mind tries to help you instead. It becomes more real rather than less real. And so if you're able to get near sort of full human dive experience, um, your mind will add things rather than taking them away. And the reason I say that is because even though I did this about the whale, I came out and said, I could feel the fish because there were fish swimming by and that you could kind of see them here and I could feel them brush against me. That is impossible, right? There's no haptic interface, especially back then. There was nothing doing that. It was just my brain telling me this is real enough that I will try and help you rather than hinder you to understand that this is real. And so since then I was hooked. I was an early adopter of this tech and I've had like three or four headsets since then. And, um, but but that, was the, that sold me on the promise of the technology. I still am sold. This idea that like it's no longer a thing that you did or it's no longer, it's no longer really like a thing that you played or a thing that you interacted with. This was a place you went and now you're back. So I... In some sense, if, if casualties of that include running into your fridge, I, I hope we can do something about that. And hopefully, you know, hopefully more gentle training on the way in. Oh, and all the, and all the, the, the new stuff has like, if you start moving past where your play space is, it'll give you sort of a virtual boundary. Looks like a wall, so it'll stop you hopefully from doing that. Um, so we're working on that. We're working on the uh, UX. UX should not include running into your fridge. But other than that, um, there's a lot. There's a lot good there. So is this like kind of like the same process of like, you know, back in the day, you're younger, you might watch a scary movie and have mm -hmm. a bad dream and then all the details are like even more clear in your brain than the movie was like some, something like that. Yeah. It's like if you're, if you're able to, I don't know. Have you ever heard like bad dreams? Like, oh my God, this is like so real, right? Yeah. If you have, if you have, yeah, if you have a bad dream, even though you wake up and consciously you understand that that was just a dream, it is not real. It takes a while to actually shake that off. Because it's still in your brain. Um, yeah, because it's still there. And you had essentially a full sensory experience of it. Um, and so it's really tough. I mean, th this has all kinds of weird knock-on effects um, where once something is real enough, like, for example, like deepfakes, off topic, but like deepfakes just basically got good enough in the last handful of years um, that you can show a deepfake to someone, tell them this is fake, here's how I faked it, and they will still kind of believe the content. Um, it's a frightening thing and a little off topic, but anyway, I, I, I believe, and maybe if anybody wants to chime in who's better at neuroscience, which would be almost everyone who studies neuroscience at all, 
um, whether or not that's true, whether there's sort of an invisible line where at, at, on one side your brain sort of pushes it out, and on the other side it kind of pulls it in. It's how it feels, but I don't know if that's really true. So what age were you when you first got interested in tech? I'm guessing you were like a young young guy. Like, oh, yeah. No, I, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't. It, it was just oh, as long a, as you remember. Yeah, it was just a question of uh, gradually developing skills and knowledge and so forth. I remember the er some of the earliest stuff. Um, my parents were kind of collectors of like electronic junk and so forth. So we had just a bunch of random parts. You know, back, back when... Back when it wasn't certain if you put a card into a computer whether that would really work, even though the slot was right, maybe the bus interface was wrong, and you know, you trying to write drivers for things. And I remember I had like a what was it, a VT two twenty terminal, um, VT one hundred. It was the it was whichever one I think it was the one hundred. It was whichever one was a monochrome screen and a dumb terminal with nothing on the back. And I found like a ninety six hundred baud modem and had to read through a manual to figure out what I put into a dumb terminal to stay down the serial line, um, please dial the phone. And then after that, I was like looking for bulletin board systems. When would this have been? Early 90s, I want to say. Um, and since then, the, the prospect of doing things in software and communication, everything to me. I was no good at hardware also. I'm still pretty bad at hardware. So my thoughts on like, do we make a system that has hardware is like, oh yeah, well, I'll make a system that has a Raspberry Pi in it. And then the last little leg will be coming out of a you know data acquisition board or or, or a DAC, um, and then everything will happen in software, and that's how I'll do it. And that's kind of defined a lot of my career. I was never really good at you know, making amplifiers or making formal circuits work, but I was decent at software. So I could be wrong. But I think Pong came out like forty fifty years ago. So like forty fifty years went from Pong to AR, VR, AI, all this advanced stuff, right? Can you talk about like how tech has advanced so this is like an overarching question how, how tech has advanced so fast and what the what are the implications of tech maybe and probably outpacing human society being able to deal with it you know yeah no i mean if there's a point where that's about to happen we're certainly standing on top of it um the idea of tech going quickly i think isn't there, I, isn't there a term for that? I can't think of what the term was. Some oh, the, the, the singularity or yeah. whatever. Thing of, yeah, I, we're, we're like if tech, you know, the one plus two, two plus four rule, like it advances like exponentially or something. Yeah, I, I used to, um, before I had heard the term the singularity, it was back in the 90s or whatever, I used to have a thing that I called like the infinite point. Because, so this, this is not a unique concept. This, this idea, essentially what I did is I looked back in history, right? And I read the history that I had my hands on anyway. And I tried to figure out at some point in, if I picked a point in time, you know, 100 AD or whatever, um, you know, 1000 BCE, whatever it is, how long would you have had to go into a coma um, and then wake up for the world to be essentially somewhat incomprehensible, for the technology to change enough that you go, wow, we can do that? How are we doing that? That's magic. And even though I was a kid and I was doing really rough math, I noticed that it was sort of having, as time went on, that there was sort of this, this logarithmic or exponential you know, continuum. And I, I tried to project it forward in the, whatever, mid-90s. And I got, I think, a date of 2018. Which, I have to give my young self some credit, is not horribly off. Yeah, I saw something where people predicting 2020, no, I'm 2033, something like that for singularity. 
Yeah, it's certainly since you're you know since you're projecting basically when a thing that is that is exponential reaches infinity, you know, fundamentally it sort of never does what. But really, I mean, in, in you know, in science, the, the concept of a singularity doesn't normally mean something strictly goes to infinity. It means that whatever the dynamics were that we were using before to describe this pattern have broken down, and it will now be limited by whatever the next thing is. And I think the next thing right now is sort of human acceptance or our social structure. So it's hard, it's hard to describe why things move faster and faster. I know that there's also some, there are also moments where some, like, uh, some enabling technology becomes finished enough that it can be handed as a product to the next engineers and the next thinkers and so forth. Um, and that definitely sort of just happened with generative AI, which I'm sure we're going to get into here. Um, but so the question is, you know, have we moved to the, have we moved to the point where our speed of movement is now governed by the next, where the next thing is, yes, yeah, some, some combination of, you know, the number of engineers that care to spend their lives trying to push, um, people's acceptance of, and, you know, and, and development of systems that are going to move into normally human things our social, you know, structure, finding some way for like displaced people to still have a life and be okay. Um, and that last one is really important that there are a lot of, I'll say technical minds that I have met that had a vision kind of like what I did and are now concerned that we won't get the good social outcome. So on a fundamental level, if you look at, uh, productivity of most industries, you know, through the industrial revolution and through the information age and so forth, most of them have just gone crazily upward. You know, in, 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 you know, point of fact, the number of human hours that it takes to make like an ear of corn or a college class or a tire for a car, whatever thing, um, the number of human hours per thing has just gone down and down and down and down. And it's trending towards zero, right? And so you might look at this and say something like, all right, uh, every industry out there, you're all about to get this new enabling technology. It's finally going to push human productivity to infinity. What I mean by that is your can of Coke will take zero human hours or, or it'll take some infinitesimal amount, technically. Um, so that means that it's possible that in the future, Coke, if it exists, the, the company will only employ, you know, five people. It'll be like a CEO, two lawyers, an engineer, and a sales, a digital salesperson, and then that's it. And if that happens and nothing else were to change, you would imagine that Coke's profit margin would then basically be infinity. They, they sort of don't need to pay anybody and they still make the entire product and they still sell the entire product. However, all the people that worked at Coke and everywhere else that's doing the same pattern also drink Coke. And so somehow they need to get Coke. And so I think what everyone and this may be an abdication of our social responsibility said, is we are tech heads. We're going to make the technology that lets this happen. And we're sure that we'll find a way. We'll, we'll increase, you know, corporate tax, you know, as, as we expect this meteoric rise in, in profit to come up, we're going to increase corporate tax to mostly meet it. And so you, and you use that tactic, do UBR or something like that? Or, or, you... or something like that. And the, it's weird because this was like a secret thought that I had in, 2005 i went oh we have a shot at this 
at the Star Trek future where like money isn't a thing anymore and everything's basically for free. And so you can decide what to do with your life, even if that's nothing, even if you just want to be like, or, you know, something, but that wouldn't normally have like gotten you money. You know, I just want to be a person who really cares about kids. And I, I just want to be the world's greatest snowboarder. And I want to write this great novel. And I want to keep making AI technology. You know, it, whatever it is, you wouldn't have to worry about like, well, what's the bottom line here? Can I do this? Am I allowed? Um, and everybody had the thought just then. I've now had like a hundred coffee conversations with people who were sort of tech heads from, you know, this area who all said, yeah, no, I assumed this was going to happen. And I assumed now was the time. Like Basically in 2020s, we would do this. It doesn't seem like we're doing it. And I don't know why. Heard that a hundred times now. It was certainly my experience as well. I don't know what that means. I don't know if you're one of those people either, but it definitely was a thing that I don't understand. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget, like, people talk, oh, the AI is going to take the jobs, but, like, you know, when the, when the cars mm -hmm. took horses their way, oh, people were, like, shoving their shit, they're going to lose their jobs. Like, every generation, 20 years, something comes, all the jobs are going to go away. And actually, um, there's more jobs created, right? So. Well, this is, this is the other side of this. It's, it's possible that we will just continue to, to create jobs and the jobs will be decent. Um, I'm concerned that we're creating jobs at the bottom end and there's less that do well. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, freelance work and gig work is good, but man, like, you have to have a, if you're a gig worker with 20 jobs or 20 different people, like, how is that really good, you know? Yeah, and, uh, you know, meanwhile, you know, I'm in a position of extreme privilege where I just happen to have grabbed on to, like, machine learning and simulations and so forth and loved it so much that I made it a career and that's, you know, I've had, I've had this trajectory um, essentially just because I really liked applied statistics. Yeah. Because that was something that was good to me. I have a friend who is, I think, one of the best visual artists in a generation. And I would say she is at least as good an artist as I am a scientist and who's like constantly sort of struggling and it, it always occurs to me is every time we talk, I'm like, we're the same person. We just loved different things. And the thing that I love, people showed up with, with you know, a paycheck for consistently for like 25 years. And you've had to like struggle and make commissions and so forth. I don't know. There's a, there's a cosmic difficulty with accepting that. Don't like that the world is that way. So maybe we all dreamed up a way it could stop being. Still hope it happens. Yeah. So back to you, but you are from me. So I'm from Texas. No Texas pretty conservative. And so either in Austin or Houston did an experiment where like they gave a thousand dollars a month to like like homeless people or like random people, right? Mm -hmm. And of course everyone like, man, they're gonna waste some money on drugs or the case. And actually stats came back, of course, the people getting the money did the stats, you gotta take it with a grain of salt, I think you know. Mm -hmm. But according to the stats, eighty percent of the people actually use the money for like like basic housing, you know, actually do use like of course, 20% like using on drugs, right? But so most people would think would say, man, 80% use it for like what it's supposed to. That's a pretty good mm -hmm. thing, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's tremendously valuable. And as, as I think a bunch of people have noted, um, the other thing is that in general, because of that, um, you know, if you, if you do this, the money tends to go directly back into the community. So it's, anyway, it's not, it's not really pocketed or put in some, unproductive place you're yeah. not, you know that you're then employing like a bunch of other people in the service economy making products that we care about and so forth so i don't know it's it's not 
you know, the, the opposite, I guess, would be if people like pocketed it and then just invested it in some other thing. Yeah, and it was sort I, of collective I, I think growth. the fair was that everyone thought we give these people a thousand dollars a month, they're, they're going to spend it on drugs and stuff, right? And, and I guess for the stats they did, like twenty percent actually did that, you know, but eighty percent were like, okay, they actually found a place to live and like did basic needs. So I thought that was kind of surprising. So, so next, um, the next question I ask you, I want you to like answer it in the way I'd give advice to people when I follow your career path, right? So, like, talk about your educational path, right? Like, how do you decide to get your PhD? How do you decide to do all this high vis data science, AI, MI, ML stuff at the University of Washington? And like, and do the answer, like, you know, like, suppose there's like somebody that's 13, 14 years old, they're interested in this stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is actually a funny question. It occurs to me, this is the one thing that's actually canned. I'm going to try and make it real, but how many times now, right? Have you said, well, here's, you know, my name's Jason and here's where I come from and here's my background. It just occurred to me that I'm actually going to have to try and pull this off of the canned speech that I have. I bet you have one of these that's 10 seconds, 30 seconds, two minutes, five minutes. Um, I do too. It's just an interesting thing. I, wanna, I want that not to be unreal in that. So I'm going to try and say it differently than I know. So, yeah, thank you. So when, when I was young, I knew I really cared about the way things worked. Um, and this was often something that made me really happy. It's just like understanding another thing about the way things worked and interacted. Um, I think I felt like there must be some answer to the, the overall pattern of the universe so that anything that I didn't understand, I could just apply these patterns. It was probably a lot of that is being, you know, a young autistic child and doing my best. Um, I want there to be patterns. They're sort of both, both comforting and useful. And so that's sort of where I started, that I knew I really wanted to go to college to study something. And when I got to, basically there were a few things in front of me. Um, but, you know, applied math and... Uh, and physics were sort of the ones that drew me the hardest. Where I was and when I was, there wasn't really computer science. Where I was, when, when did I actually go? I think I went in 1995 um, to a nice liberal arts college, Lewis and Clark College. It's still, it's still great, but at the time, they had, I think, one professor who was into computer science, and um, I did end up learning from him, but, um, but basically there wasn't a, an obvious... Oh, there wasn't a major in it, rather. Sorry. There wasn't like a minor, but it was considered an offshoot of math. And that professor, who in question, who I, I love the guy to death, basically always came from the perspective that like a computer is a box you do math on. You want to do math. We all want to do math, obviously. So, you know, you have this box and this box helps you do numerical problems. Um, that was how I came into it. And it actually served me pretty well for a while, but I still only like learned a bit of C and so on. And uh, I, eventually, uh, I eventually got, uh, because I wanted to do uh, an honors thesis, which required research, um, I went to work in the lab of a professor named John Abley, who um, we were doing low temperature physics at the time. So it was superconductivity, sort of back in the 90s. And it, um, we had basically a, a superconducting film material. It was laboriously produced by, I think, evaporating ovens. And then that had to live, because of the superconducting question, in a vat of liquid helium, 
which then had a vacuum jacket around that, then liquid nitrogen, vacuum and liquid nitrogen again, and a superconducting magnet in it. So we could put this huge magnetic field across it and start uh, driving current across it. So because of this, we had a lab with like really six instruments and um, like uh, three or four knobs that basically you had to turn in the right order. Um, and one of the big things, even though I did write something about superconductivity as a thesis, I feel like my real thesis was automating that lab. That was my first exposure to like, well, if I understand software and hardware, commodity hardware exists, I can just put those two skills together. And now all of a sudden we only need one person to run the lab instead of like three, which is what sort of I accomplished by the end of my time there. Um, and I talked about a specific regime of high temperature superconductors and it was fine. but that really got me into this idea that I could do a lot with a computer um, that wasn't strictly math, but had math within it. So then I went to grad school and same kind of thing. You go to grad school, uh, I went to grad school at the University of Washington. And when you go in for physics, the first couple of years are like a blur. It's just wall to wall, like 14 hour days every day, eight on weekends, live in the department, you never see the sun during the winter. And I loved it. It was, it was a really good time. Um, and I eventually, um, I eventually took a research position also there, uh, working on a thing called the Gamma Ray Large Area Space Telescope, now called Fermi, because they give them the good names once they launch and do not blow up and work. Uh, and, and, and how did you yeah. get that position? Is it like part of an internship or part of your, uh, like, your, you yeah. had to do, do your PhD? It's, it's something you have to do to do a dissertation, get your PhD. And there is no formal process for it. You really have to go hunting down people. So there's, so there's a weird kind of speed dating kind of thing where everyone asks everyone else, well, who's doing what? What do you want to do? And there are always a couple of professors, like the really smart one is, uh, you know, particle theory, right? Like everyone wants to do particle theory. That's the smartest thing you can do. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I ended up doing computational astrophysics, kind of the other end of the spectrum. I always say this because computational astrophysics sounds impressive, like in a way that maybe it shouldn't. Um, not that it wasn't hard, but, but particle theorists are the sort of crazy people that, that are, you know, that are known to be uh, super intelligent. So, but I really wanted to work on something in space, and I really liked detectors, and I really liked computational things. So I ended up kind of asking around and ended up working on the GLASS project, um, but it hadn't really been built yet. So a lot of my work was simulations and then optimization. So this is the one end of uh, computer simulation and question answering stuff where you have heavy physics knowledge about what's about to happen and you simulate a thing. In this case, it's like a detector in low Earth orbit looking at the universe and a bunch of particles coming in, um, interacting with the detector and like figure out what data would then come off it. And then you change something like, well, I'll change the thickness of the shielding part and see, whether, see how it would change the output and how it would ultimately change the performance to see whether it's worth it. And so in this way, a bunch of the detector was sort of defined and made. Um, and that kind of process, I think of it as one end because the other end is going to be machine learning. Spoilers for this conversation, but like the other end's about to be machine learning. This end is I simulate a thing, I optimize a thing, I maybe have like one free parameter that we don't know about. And if we want to find out what that parameter is, we might have some data, and then we tweak whatever we are unsure about until the real data looks like the fake data. We say, okay, that must have been 
the thing I'm simulating. Sorry, that's a, a bit archaic to say it that way. But so I came out of this and I also made a, um, a detection algorithm because gamma rays are fairly hard to detect and you don't get that many of them, especially from distant sources. So, and, and some of them are truly diffuse. They just come from the middle of nowhere. Um, thing called the, the, um, the cosmic microwave background photons, really low energy photons. And then there are cosmic rays, basically very high energy, often charged things. And if one smacks into the other one, it can take the low energy photon and shift it all the way up into a gamma ray or an X-ray. So some of them come from nowhere. And then you have these really dim, diffuse sources. Um, and so trying to make a detection algorithm was challenging. And, and part of a, I was told later that, that some of the stuff that I wrote during that time went into making the sky catalog that came off the detector once it was in orbit. So very happy about that. Um, but once I did my dissertation and graduated, uh, there's really no money in astrophysics. I mean, like a little bit, but it's, it's arcane and it comes from weird places. And, um, but what had happened was that this was just post 9-11. Think about it, it's like 2009. And everybody really cared about nuclear security. And so I went to work at the Pacific Northwest National Lab, which if you're unfamiliar with it, we have a national lab like, you know, Lawrence Livermore or Berkeley or whatever in our own backyard. It's over in Richland, Washington. It's like start in Seattle, go east like three hours and you basically find it. So I worked with them. It was a really good time. I, I ended up working with them for like 12 years. Um, but at first, I was postdocing and I did the same sort of thing, like simulating detectors, optimizing what those detectors should look like or have in them. Um, but it was all on the ground. It was like, well, we want to make sure that there are no stray or, or smuggled or whatever radioactive sources out there. Um, and so, but every year that I was there, um, even though I'd kind of become an, you know, an old hand at simulating stuff directly and doing these optimizations, we needed more stuff like detection algorithms. Um, and so I sort of took a hand at that and gradually, gradually for that, for all 12 years, every year I would move a little bit away from, <clears throat> we have a lot of physics knowledge. There's only a couple things we don't know and let's find them towards there is a really open-ended thing. All we have is examples of it. We don't know what model to put against this to like detect a thing or understand a thing. So we need really flexible, open-ended models, which is basically what modern machine learning is. So essentially, I came in doing very specific radiation transport optimizations on like detectors, and I came out doing research on autoencoders for like generalized anomaly detection that can use any kind of input stream. Um, that was basically the end of my tenure at the lab. I was actually really happy about that work. If um, people are familiar with well, I can get into what an autoencoder is in a, in, a, in a minute. Maybe it's less germane to the story. But um, the point is we made a thing which is now widely used, um, the technique, which is basically um, just basically training a neural net to try and copy and paste the same thing with a very limited, uh, with a very, very limited data set um, so that when you did that in the future and the algorithm said like, the you're basically trying to get the algorithm to say, huh, what is that? And when it says, huh, what is that? You go, ah, you haven't seen that before, so that's unusual. And we showed this on like human heartbeats. If somebody, you know, you could train this on somebody's heart. And then if they were having a heart attack or an arrhythmia, it would pick that up. Even though it didn't know what a heartbeat was and it didn't know what arrhythmia was, it knew something just went weird. Very proud of that work. Now that's like very common in the, you know, field of neural net stuff. But that was what, 2015, 2014? 
So at that point, I had a friend who um, worked at a startup studio in Seattle. Um, this is one of the places, sort of a incubator style thing, where they would ideate, come up with ideas, work them out, and like spin out prototypes, and then help people start companies based on them. Um, hopefully, I'm characterizing that well. But he knew, I think, only that I had done a bunch of radiation detector stuff, and they wanted to try like a novel radiation detector, which was very off their line. Didn't normally do hardware or or any of that kind of thing. I said, yeah, sure. And uh, the, the concept turned out to be instead of radiation hardening um, computer memory, they tried to soften it so that the, the idea behind hardening is if, you know, high energy charge particles or whatever hit um, elements of the memory, it might flip bits. They try and stop that from happening as much as they can. Um, we had some techniques to try and make it happen more often to see if we could then use arbitrary RAM. So like stuff that's in your laptop or the phone as a radiation detector. It turns out the answer was probably yes, but to two orders of magnitude less than would matter. <laughs> so yes, but also no. And I had loaned myself to the startup studio, that, that, those labs, as like a visiting scientist for three months. And we found out in basically a month and a quarter that this thing wasn't going to work. But I was still there. And so my friend said, well, what else do you do? And I said, well, actually, for the better part of a decade, I've been much more of this thing called a data scientist, um, which is somebody that does analyses, you've probably heard of machine learning again. I want to say 2016. And so at the, he basically said, okay, go do something. So I worked with one of the engineers to get data from an online uh, multiplayer game. And since you could get this stuff on an API from like a streaming source as these games were being played, I made a little machine learning thing to figure out who was most likely to win and like showed how good it was and did some of the, you know, the, the sort of classic what we call supervised machine learning techniques now. Um, and it worked. And that actually ended up taking several intense pivots internally, but becoming a little company called uh, Taunt, which I can't remember. I think it got acquired later on. Need to, need to check out where that, what became of that. But I was absolutely hooked because unlike the National Lab, I had just done something for real. Like, you know, I had produced a thing that became a product that then was of interest that people wanted and we could spin it out and turn it into something. And this was something that um, you don't get deeper in academia. Um, there are a lot of benefits to working in academia, but you don't, you don't get that one. Often what happens is you have, the, you have your good idea, you ask for money, you hope that it comes. If it comes, it'll be like six months from now, and then it needs to sort of go through another process. So it's like a year out that you have to think of your cool thing and then actually start doing it if you, you, know, if you got funding. That's a little bit of a mischaracterization. There are some things that continue, but if you have a new idea, it's often that kind of standoff. Um, so back when I was at the lab, I was continually getting scooped by like Google and Stanford, where we'd have a good idea, we'd start putting it into practice, and then two days later, you know, uh, they'd go, oh, you know, there was a paper from Google doing exactly this, and it works great. Great, but we had to start, we had to have this idea like eight months ago. So... I feel like I'm um, starting the drag race like five you, seconds you, you're later. You're talking about your time at Pioneer School Labs, right? Oh, no. Uh, well, this is sort of why Pioneer School Labs is so attractive. Because th this was more of a, a, a when, I was at, when I was at the National Lab, the uh, money streams tend to have a lot of momentum. So if you win them, you tend to win them again. And there's a lot of, you know, you go and chat with sponsors. You make sure that you're doing the kind of research that they're supposed to be sponsoring and that they are happy with what you've done. And there's sort of all of this sort of slow politics. Happens. And so 
I was the sort that always wanted to like break down walls and try new things and, and do a bunch of stuff. And that played all right, but not too well with the National Lab structure, at least at the time. Um, I think they have more internal investiture in AI things. So I, I don't want to. I don't want to throw them under that, that bus. But at the time, it was difficult for me, at least, to say, hey, you know what would be cool? I think we could do this and then actually go do it. Um, but, in the, but in the startup world, I could. And so they said, okay, well, just be our head data scientist. You're the only data scientist, and we're not sure what to do with the data scientist, but we want you around, so why don't you start building things and we'll figure it out. For like four years, we built everything. I have a million of these, and I'll go on forever if you let me. But everything we that was right when convolutional neural nets and computer vision was getting really big when all of a sudden instead of having like 20,000 examples of a dog and a cat you could say well i already have a pre-cooked algorithm and i have 30 examples of like cancer and 100 examples of not cancer and that's enough to like like it essentially um do transfer learning on this network and still train something that would now tell you what was cancer and what wasn't to a pretty good degree everybody lost their minds Man, we made a bunch of stuff based on that. We tried a bunch of weird things. So how did y'all yeah. decide what to work on? Like with all the, how to be like hundreds of things, the cool things to work on. How do you decide what to focus on? Um, I, I have to thank, like, I have to thank Pioneer Square Labs a lot for giving me this kind of, um, this kind of, this kind of validation idea. Um, when I showed up, I really didn't know what a startup was or how it worked. I just knew like somebody pays you and then you do what you want and you make a product. But as it turns out, um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of really good best practices understanding out there. And PSL was great at having a validation process. Um, so all the things that you would want, like if, if right now you have an awesome idea and you walk into a venture capitalist office and you say, I got this great idea, would you give me money for it? They're always going to ask you a bunch of questions. Those questions are basically, all right, who's going to buy it? Like, what's your ideal customer profile? If all those people bought it, how much would you basically make? Like if, you know, if you full saturated this market, everybody loved it. It was the best thing since sliced bread and all the ICPs bought it. How much essentially would your total addressable market? And so they want to know that number. Um, are you certain that you can build it? Is there still technical risk or is this a thing you can definitely do via engineering? Um, often that was uh, my arena to figure out whether some new AI or machine learning thing would, would fly or whether it was sort of ready for prime time. Um, they'll ask you what your team is. Like, have you guys done this before? You know, has, has, the, has the CEO been a CEO on anything? What sort of thing? Has the CTO been a CTO before on what sort of thing? Um, and, then a, and then a scattering of other stuff as well. Like go-to-market strategy is a little more esoteric, but sort of a broad concept that just means like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going you know, to put a bunch of ads on Facebook? If so, is that going to work? Why do we think that's going to work? You know, how, what's, your, what's your outgoing sales process? If you're trying to sell some kind of B2B thing where I sell a whole platform to another company, then it's a really long sales process and you need to have like a lot of people on board. But if you're going to sell directly to consumers, maybe just put ads on Facebook and people show up. Um, so that, you know, the go-to-market strategy, I think that's most of them. But so what would happen, just given, given all that is the picture, like those are the things you need to win. And if you go ask venture capitalists for money, they're going to say, please answer these questions before you come in here. Um, we would have basically ideation sessions where at that point it was anything goes, just anything on the table, whatever you've been thinking about, whatever you think would be cool. For me, it was often like AI things because I'm reading papers and testing things. Um, and 
people would then, like once we codified them, people would then knock them down. Most of them knock down immediately for one of these aforementioned vector of things you've got to have. You'd say, well, you know, the people who want to buy it can't, and the people who don't want to buy it can, and it's a problem. Um, and some of them just needed better definitions. Very good idea, and we don't know who would be the CEO, but we think we know someone who might. Um, so if they didn't get knocked down, they're still basically on the board. Um, there was a little bit of consensus. Somebody then had to champion. So this was the most interesting part. Like, basically somebody, and it could be anybody, it could be the people from marketing, people from design, it could be me, um, engineers, would say, you know what, I care about this one enough. I think this is the cool one. I'm going to go and push on this. Meaning, I'm normally going to do whatever my magic is a little bit to prove out the piece that we need and a little bit more. And then once I've done that, I'll try and get a couple other people to spend a little of their time. So there was, again, a little, like, internal push and shove going on where somebody would go, no, you've got to come and do your marketing tests for this because this is going to be great. So we'd all try and talk each other in, which means everybody was pitching all the time. Like, you just go, we used to do this for practice. You know, you go, like, sit down at lunch and go, like, pitch me something. What have you been thinking about? Oh, well, I think we should do this because of that. Anyway, so once that went forward for a little bit, and you kind of had those, whatever I said, six questions, at least basically laid out, then there'd be kind of a more formal, like, go, no-go decision. We'd get the, you know, managing directors in there, pitch them on it, explain why we think it's a good idea. We'd all deliberate. And still maybe half of them died right then. Um, just because, you know, the investors are good at investing. They know what's probably, what's most and likely to work. Square Labs is still around, right? Still oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you um, might not know this, but like, I'm sure it's really competitive to get, get accepted, right? For like, what's yeah. the accept? You remember the acceptance rate, your acceptance rate was like 1%, 10%? Oh, God. Okay, okay. So if I, if I had to, I don't know formally, but like if I had to guess, I'd say once we were out of an ideation session, Maybe one in five or one in six really made it to the point where the MDs would sit in a room and go, yeah, you know what? Go ahead and put some resources against this. We're going to start seeing if we can find a founding team. Let's try and make this fly. And the, that, the one in five was already culled by a few. Like, you know, during the ideation session, it's like people would throw out 30 things and like four would still basically be on the board and sort of not knocked down. Then of those four, like somebody would pick one maybe two if they were really good, and start running on that. And we do these every couple of weeks or every month. So if I basically give an order of magnitude up front, like I had a cool idea, I'm going to go and talk about it to, okay, we can put a couple of weeks against this and see if it flies. That's like, that's like a factor of 10. And then essentially it was still a factor of two or three at that second sort of like red light, green light point. So I want to say... And again, like I, I can't, I can't speak to this formality. I'm sure they have this number because they have a lot of tools for this, but I never really looked specifically. Um, so that's probably one in 30 or okay. something. It's like a few percent, like maybe two to 5% of, Hey, I got a cool idea. Eventually made it so that we were really trying to make that one go. And when a company gets accepted, like how long does the, does it last? Like, like three months, four months? Like What's the so this was all over the place. Um, this has also surprised me because the validation process was very consistent and good in that everybody, this, this place was just full of folks who had been like successful investors, successful founders. So they all kind of knew what to say to a venture capitalist. So they knew what could kill the thing. Um, so 
so what would happen at that point is they tried to put all the pieces together to successfully get the thing funded, which is basically the, that vector of things that I mentioned again, only harder this time. It's like they had to make the you had to make the case rock solid that like the technology would work. You had to basically say, here's my team. No, really. They said if we do this, they're on board. Here's what they've done before. We had to like do more rigorous market testing. So you know, I said, look, I put out a I put out an ad that suggested this thing existed already. And 5% of the people who saw it clicked on it. That's crazy, you know, and, and you would sort of line up all of these facts and turn them into a deck and sort of start handing them to this, this team that we're bringing on to run it. And that process, that whole process was all over the map. It would take like, it would be almost instantaneous some of the time. It was like three weeks. Yeah, we did it all. Somebody's really on board. Yeah, we showed it. Yeah, it's perfect. Let's try and get it funded. And then some of them were like six months and we gave up or, or you know, so... So that was surprisingly one-off. I think the, the process became, yeah, the process was kind of like wild and woolly up front when we were all throwing out stuff. Then it kind of got narrow where people went like, no, here are really the six concepts. We have to hit all these. All these have to be green lights or it's a red light. It's not going to work. And then it kind of got less specific again. And, and somewhere in there, uh, the new founding team that the MDs and everyone else had found and worked with kind of started to take over. Um, and then normally we would do tech to one side of like MVP or minimum viable product. It was either we had made a demo to prove that this would work. And then we threw the demo in the track. We, we gave them the demo, but like no one was going to use it. And we would help them rewrite it into proper code. That would often be like, okay, but our database is just a CSV file. And like, there is no, there is no back end. It's yeah, really just like my laptop. There's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, and you just throw that off the table. This, this is go, the like, vision, yeah. but that's what I'm really doing right now. <laughs> I've done a lot of, a lot of that, but occasionally, um, depending on time, um, and if they hadn't hired engineers or whatever, sometimes we would then be that team and take them, start taking them really towards like proper back ending and like cloud infrastructure, you know, support and so forth. Um, I don't know. I think that was about two and three. It was like two demos that then we were going to hand them and explain how to do it again. And one, yeah, we really pushed this basically into a real product before it got funded. Um, and then ideally, you know, they would get them through like a seed round of funding. And now, they, does the partners curl up? Do yeah. they have their own like VC arm to fund companies? Always, always yeah. they help the founders they, meet people and get. They do now. So, um, so sometime in the after I showed up, but before I left. They raised a VC fund specifically, and so there is one. Um, I don't think, uh, don't quote me on this, I don't think they tend to directly fund their own pool just because it would seem like a weird signal. And this is the thing, there's a lot of weird signals in this, in this industry. But like if they, you know, if they said, hey, there's people who came out of our incubator and we're also going to be the main funding source because we also have a VC arm. Um, it would look weird. I think they do have some deal where maybe they give some kind of additional funding and then it's part of it, but I don't think they like to, I don't think they like to lead with it. Try and make sure that somebody else is so that, so that it's an overt signal of like success. And I, again, don't quote me on that because I know there are aspects specifically to VC funding that are very complex and that I'm probably representing. And how long ago were you, were you, were you with Pioneer Score Labs? Uh, that would have been, let's say, 2016 through like, uh, just a second. <laughs> Maybe like, uh, oh yeah, through, that's right, through like,
like late 2020 because COVID happened. Okay. So I'm sure you met and talked to a lot of founders, right? Some successful, some not successful. Mm. From your point of view, what were the values or characteristics that successful founders had that the unsuccessful founders did not have? This is actually quite interesting. Um, I wish that I had a better answer for this. I, I, I want to ask you this one too, after I maybe say something about it. But, but to tell you the truth, it was, very, it was really tough. There were things that I thought led to success, but there were mostly there were just sort of prerequisites. Like, for example, one of the things that a CEO probably doesn't do is anything other than say every day is a great day and we're all going, we're all going to the moon. Um, and the reason is because they're sort of the captain of a ship. Whoever it is, is, is if they have bad days and they say, I, you know, I don't believe in this, how is anyone else going to believe in it and do their job? So they're stuck in some sense. They're the one person who's not allowed to have a bad day um, or show it. So and they can't tell when they can't tell a co-founder. I mean, they can't tell investors, you know, like, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think maybe, I think maybe there's sort of a captain and first officer thing where behind closed doors, like maybe the CEO and the CTO can sort of uh, hash that stuff out. But yeah, at least, at least what I've seen is for the rest of folks, they need to present this front where like everything is fine. Even if we don't know where funding is coming from, even if we're not sure about what's coming next, even if some technology has just failed and now we're not sure how we're going to fix it, they still have to present that. Um, at least mostly. And um, that actually is an issue with transparency now that I think about it. Because I've, the, the downside of this, right, is if somebody says, uh, yeah, I know everything's fine, everything's great, don't worry about it, everything, go into the moon, and then the next day they're like, actually, we're shutting our doors, you know, <laughs> everyone go home. Yeah. And uh, that's, like, that's clearly too far to one side. Also, I won't come nothing was Coinbase, they had a Subo commercial, and then the next day laid off like 10% of the people or something like that, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's you. So you shouldn't do that. But I've, I've seen people do bad news really well, um, where they basically say, hey, look, you know, I, I, you know, with full disclosure, here is the bad news. Here's what I, I think we have to do about it. Here's how we're getting back on track. And then kind of go on. And so the, there's, there's sort of a moment where they do communication and then they sort of go back to, we're going to be great. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I don't know. The cynic in me says, well, they just have had to have had to fail at it a few times. And that's actually true for a lot of people. Not everybody. I've seen people seem to be very successful the first time they do this. But a lot of the deciding factor that seems to come out of uh, VCs is like, has your CEO been a CEO? And I think the perspective is it's very rare to make it the first time and you need to fail so that you learn a bunch of like really hard lessons. I don't know if that's fair or not. In fact, it feels unfair, especially if it's the first time. Yeah, um, that's one thing that I've heard, and I'm not sure I totally believe. Yeah, with me, the California is like, I mean, I've heard it before, you know, the VC, where they're back someone who failed before, right? Yeah. But, but okay, so you want to fail, you want to back someone who's already proven they can fail versus <laughs> yeah. someone who has, you know, I've never followed that logic, you know, but I know a lot of VCs yeah. do. Yeah, I don't even, it's, uh, yeah, a friend of mine once said to not do a model, and I never did that model. The, the idea was if you took, everything about a business that was just about to happen, all of the, all their pitch deck, all of their concept and whatever, and ground it down to like all the text and all the very, you know, addressable market and so forth. Could you guess as to their chance of success before they started? Um, 
And this friend of mine, who shall remain nameless for to protect the guilty or whatever, said, no, don't do that. What you're going to find is only like only one thing will matter. It's whether your CEO was ever a CEO before, then everything else is random. And if we find that out, it's going to be really depressing to everyone. And I went, I don't know if I totally believe that. But there was a part of me that was like, are we just, you know, in some, to some extent, are we just rolling very loaded dice? And the goal is to do it as many times as possible. I don't think so. At least you can't think that way. Certainly, it's like successful CEOs don't think that way. They think, this is it. This, yeah. is, this is the moonshot. This is the one that's going all the way. Um, and so that's, so that's one aspect. You well, have to be the, all the way in it. Yeah, you have to be delusional too. I think like, you know, that's your 95% of startups fail, but I'll be the 5%, you know, who's going to make it. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite loaded in that way. Um, that's an interesting, I don't know, it's an interesting perspective. I, again, I'm, I'm very spoiled in this way because the things that make me go are essentially, are there hard puzzles and can I try and out, outsmart and outthink some kind of system? And do the things that I do have a chance of helping somebody's life at some point? And those are kind of my two guiding stars. And really there's a lot of this other stuff where people want to know, well, what's the cut? What's the bottom line? And you know, what are our real chances of success and so forth that bother me, I think, less than, than other folks. But again, that's a very engineery, science-y perspective to have. And, yeah. and people absolutely need to be worried about those things. So that's, I don't know if there's anything else that really typifies a successful CEO from an unsuccessful one. And then, of course, you're talking about the VCs want, you know, entrepreneurs be CEOs two or three times, right? But my thing is, right, if you're a full-time CEO, you're probably not making any money, right? So who really has a resource that I could be a full-time CEO for a startup, like at two or three field startups for they get it right? No. Yeah, this is a this is a really good question. Um, I mean, it's true of working in the early stage, almost at any stage. Like you, you know, you get you get a paycheck once everyone's funded, but that means there's there's at least sort of several stages of a company. One of which is the really hard one. I think was what you're, you're describing here, which is before we are funded, um, before anybody has any money. We might need to actually pay money to make this thing go because there's AWS bills and yeah. like marketing, a little and bit mo- of marketing. And most VCs have a negative conversation if you like have a full-time job. Even even you have even you work at Amazon forty hours a week and working your startup forty hours a week, they still have a negative conversation because you're not all in. Yeah, no, this is um, this is genuinely tough, and I uh, maybe this is part of the reason why people say if you've been a CEO before, this actually just occurred to me. Possibly this is part of the reason because I feel this pain too. Um, if you've been funded, um, you know, the common wisdom is, look, you're not going to make what you would make at Google. You're not going to even make what you would make at sort of a mid-sized company. Um, you're basically going to make an okay paycheck and then you get the lottery ticket, you know, which is a piece of equity. And you hope that this is the right one. And then statistically, you do this, you do like seven or eight of these in your career and one of them is the one and it blows up and you get like a couple million dollars off of it and it pays for all of your not quite working at Googleness, um, Or it doesn't and that never happens. Or it happens three times and you know, you're glad that you did that. But before you're funded, um, I see a lot of people really struggling with this. You have all kinds of weird make-do situations where it's like, well, you know, have someone who's, on as a, who's going to be the CTO 
but that person's got a day job doing engineering right now. So we're doing it kind of nights and weekends. And once we get funded, then that person is going to step out of what they're doing now and into being the CTO here. And they kind of can't do it until we're funded, but we only get funded by them doing enough prototyping and, you know, MVP work that people start to take interest. So it's an incredible strain. And, and, but if you have won once, if you basically, if you were a CEO in a company that got a real exit, you're probably not nearly as concerned about paychecks and money as everybody else. Um, so that the kind of, well, were you a CEO or a CTO at a company that did actually get a successful exit? You know, did you own like ultimately 10% of a company that sold for a billion dollars? And now, you know, what do you think? You're going to draw a paycheck? No, you're just going to do whatever your next thing is. And you're going to pour heart and soul into it. And I kind of wonder if part of the, have you been a CEO before? Is that, that, you know, if you don't really need to worry about paying the mortgage, are you now that much more able to throw yourself completely into this thing? The answer is probably yes. And that's a really unfortunate answer because it's just like, it makes for a sort of unlevel playing field. Yeah, it definitely knocks a lot of people off the playing field, so to speak, right? Yeah, no, this is tough for me. I mean, I'm still very much need to, to pay a mortgage and, and get a paycheck and so forth. And so as a result, there are some things um, that I kind of left on the drawing room floor, even though I'd very much like to do them that are related to the world that I'm in that probably are going to be some kind of future goal. And, um, but I can't just, you know, not only am I, you know, not only am I not going to get paid for a year and a half for a shot at maybe getting paid, I'm also going to pay for all of these resources and infrastructure for that year and a half. And you look at the burn rate and you're just like, no, that's impossible. So I, you know. yeah, I definitely think it's definitely more of a challenge. If you're not tech founder, you're not tech founder, right? We can't afford to hire anyone from Amazon. You can't afford that, right? And the people you can afford, they're right out of boot camp or like internships and they, they probably don't have the knowledge of what you need, right? So it's like a, it's a tough thing. And then like, if you're not a tech founder, you're like, okay, let me suck it up and learn how to code myself. That's probably not your, you know, forte or skill set, right? You know, so it's, yeah. Yeah, and, and um, in particular where um, I think, uh, honestly, the modern, the modern move towards generative, generative AI is going to help this somewhat. But... Yeah, there's absolutely, sometimes you end up just taking like little pieces of a, a problem just because you can and you kind of want friends to win. Um, you know, um, Aaron with working on Cheeky, I wrote, um, I wrote a number of the AI pieces. of that. And um, among other things, he keeps telling me that people go to Cheeky say like, well, I put my resume in and it's your extraction technique is like better than LinkedIn. <laughs> Um, and I, I'm very, I mean, being honest, that's not really saying much, you know? Well, to be fair, <laughs> yeah, I have tried it on LinkedIn and, and it isn't, but, but you know, the fact that the, the <clears> fact <throat> that I just happened to be working in like prompt chaining and, you know, kind <clears> of <throat> at the edge of like LLM research. So we could do these sort of like extractions that made sense and put them where they should go and sort of have double checks to make sure that something didn't go wrong. All these pieces that you would do, um, is, is really in that product just cause I, I want Aaron to win. Like, and, and it's, that's random, right? He, he, um, he just happened to know somebody with like that specific area of expertise. And I don't know. It, it feels like there was a very, there's a very difficult situation kind of at the, you know, bootstrapping end of funding where you're just doing it yourself. You're asking friends, you're like taking your savings and, 
borrowing from family and everything else to make this dream go. Um, there's just a lot simpler for anyone who has slightly deeper pockets. And that's a, that's a tough reality. I don't have an answer to it, but it's maybe good to be aware of it. Yeah. So I want to go back to the, the gamma ray telescope you worked on. Mm. Is that still in space? Is NASA still using this telescope? I think so. I haven't checked on it for a little while, and I think it now I should now I'm feel dumb because now it'll, I'll be wrong by a few years. I'll have to go check. But I think, let's see if it's, it has to be getting close to the end of its lifespan. I should check. We could, we could check while we're here if you want, but like, I actually am not sure if it's still, it's, its predecessor was um, an experiment called EGRIT, an acronym, which I do not remember. Um, and it was substantially better than EGRIT for gamma ray detection. But I think they were, we were going to basically increase the number of X-ray and well, the number of gamma ray objects that we expected to know about by at least an order of magnitude. And I think that happened. Again, I'm throwing out numbers like I, when I actually worked on this, it was whatever, 20 years. Yeah. It's been a while, but um, so I hope I'm not to totally wrong about that. So next, talk about this Monte Carlo particle transport mm. thing you did. Mm. Yeah. So. When, when I said that I did sort of simulations and then optimization, um, MCNP is a piece of uh, software that does particle transport. And what I mean by that is you sort of make a CAD description of a thing. Um, so, for example, I made these literally with like a pair of calipers and like measuring tape, made these agonizingly specific um, measurements and models of like some vehicle stuff that were pertinent. You know, hey, what's a, what's a standard truck? Okay, well, it's like this. And so the idea was, um, the idea was to simulate all these sort of scenarios. I have to tiptoe around that line, but the idea being that if we were going to make a detector work, we might say, well, how many, you know, how much detector material actually has to be in here, and how much shielding? Should be. And so you'd kind of take all of your options and form them into a space of possible options, and then you'd simulate like a at a grid in that space and see where you got the best performance and say, yep, okay, we need this much detector and that much shielding. That's the best performance we can get. So MCMP itself was just a radiation transport code that worked on the particle level. Actually, it was thinking about that that, um, that convinced me about the sort of uh, universe simulation theory. This idea, because particle transport's really expensive. Um, I shouldn't dive right into that, but... Um, but particle, uh, yeah, particle transport simulation is really expensive. So one of the first papers I ever wrote was um, how to do this on random PCs that you stole from your coworkers. Um, I didn't call it that, but that was exactly what happened. Everyone was getting rid of these old PCs, and I was a postdoc when I started this work, so like that was all I could get. People were throwing them away, and I went, no, 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 no. Let me have that via the cross-requisition form. And there was this form that let me get everybody's. So I had like, uh, my, my office is always so hot. I had like 20 of these like stolen computers basically from other people that were all a generation back and all different stuff. And so I had to make a, um, I basically made a thing using the multiprocessor libraries of the day, um, OpenMP and MPI, to uh, make a system that would dole out an appropriate number of particles to each one of those computers so that they would all kind of be done at the same time. And they could like come back and do what they call rendezvous, where they would dump all their data to one spot. So like, basically, that was that was the thing. The, the simulation is very open ended. Did a lot of different stuff there. Um, 
but particle simulation itself is really expensive because you basically have to do the, the, the term Monte Carlo simulation is basically what happens when you say, I am going to imagine a thing, whatever, a car driving into a pole or, you know, a, uh, a, a radioactive decay happening and shooting a gamma particle off in some direction or whatever it is. And then essentially you simulate all the physics with statistical understandings. Instead. So I'm like, well, there's a gamma ray and it, it shoots into a wall. Okay, well, what happens? Well, at some point, it's going to hit something in that wall. It's a gamma ray, so it can go a fair ways, right? But at some point, it's going to hit like a nucleus or, you know, an atom and do something. There's a couple ways it could like scatter or be absorbed. But when that, so you sort of roll dice for when it gets absorbed and how it gets absorbed and so forth. And that's your one history. And then you start it again. You roll different dice. And you do this so many times that you build up whatever you're looking for. And it turns out that's really computationally intensive, um, which is in a semi-jokey way why I was convinced of convinced of simulation theory a long time ago. That, um, because if you made a simulation, you would definitely have, you would definitely use um, like fluid dynamics whenever you could. And it would only matter if you were looking intensely at the thing that you would use particle dynamics because they're very expensive. Um, and because the universe you know, via quantum mechanics seems to actually work that way. It's evidence that, you know, if you wrote, if you wrote a simulation, there's just no way you would do particle transfer for everything. Take way too long. Even, and no matter how fast of a computer you have, that will hold. Like you'd always rather use fluid and general dynamics where, where it doesn't matter and where you could look at it later and decide. Um, it's just, it parallels, uh, it parallels uh, the collapse of the wave function of quantum mechanics so well. That I, was, I was somewhat convinced. So with all these particles moving around, like how do we measure? Is it like a certain tool? Is, like, is it like a standard tool? All people like this or two have to use a measure or like different countries do different tools? Like is like some kind of standard for this? Oh, you mean for the simulation? And, yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, across, across radiation physics, there's a bunch of, um, there's a bunch of units that you use. Um, Rankins and REMS and so forth. That have to do with dose normally, um, but for detectors, uh, very normally what will really happen, what comes off of a, a detector is more like a number of counts in a second, number of counts in a time window. So we tend to, the simulations that I did tended to end there. Be like, well, um, this detector will tell me every time a photon hits it, and it'll tell me the energy of that photon within an uncertainty of a you know, certain and so we'd kind of simulate, again, using, using Monte Carlo, we'd sort of simulate what would come off of the detector. And it was, and it was that that sort of defined. The and what's like the small, I don't know, back in the day, the smallest thing was an atom, right? Then that broken down. Like right, right now, what's like the smallest piece of organism matter that we know about, that we either see or we think we see? Let me not get to that. I think it's still quarks. Be the smallest thing okay. That you have, you know. And you have to use like some kind of powerful microscope to see those, right? Well, you can't. Um, you, you basically, at this point, we, we, we see things that are that small, unless, oh, let me not get this wrong. I'm like a terrible physician. Um, but uh, I believe at this point, we're still, we basically believe that some of these things, you can't, there are principles by which you can't see like one quark at a time, but you can kind of see the transition between maybe a charged particle and a non-charged particle that both have the same mass. 
Um, so essentially, most of these things are resolved by really uh, high energy colliders, where you sort of, you know, whatever it is, I take protons and I accelerate protons really fast in a ring, and I smack them into something. And I basically go, okay, I will simulate this according to the standard physics model. Um, and if the standard physics model holds, I expect this many, you know, protons to just make it through, this many to just deposit all their energy, and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and essentially be absorbed by some attendant molecule or whatever, uh, this many to like turn into neutrons and give off a neutrino and it, you know, whatever, all, all the things that you basically think might happen. And then you find a way to track the stuff that you can that comes off that, which normally is a bunch of um, interleaved like silicon strips where if a charged thing goes zipping through them, it induces a little bit of current and so you can tell that it went there. And then really elaborate code to reconstruct where we think all those tracks went. And then much like a Monte Carlo simulation, we actually do it a bunch of times. You throw all your, you know, protons in and watch them all sort of scatter and splatter off. And you look at all the, all the reconstructed events that came off, because all of them happened quite quickly. So you look at all the reconstructed events and essentially count them up and make your various calculations where you say, all right, I think physics works this way. You know, it's the, the scattering cross-section of that against this was this. So I expect this many you know, protons, this many production events, and so forth. Um, and you count them all up and basically say, is this correct? And then people sort of navel-gaze at that data and say, if there is an extra thing that violates what we understand now, it will look like, you know, an extra peak. There will be more, there'll, there'll be more like, protons that made it all the way through than we think and ended up catching. Um, I don't know if that's adequate or not. I, I guess that's just... Um, so a lot of stuff right now is based on the law of physics, right? Mm. I could be wrong, but everything based on law of physics, but there's a lot of theories out there that cannot be proven or disproved. But it's like, I, I won't say best guess, but best guess, right? Like how much of stuff that scientists put out as being like true or factual is actually based on like a um, theory that they can't prove yet? Oh gosh! And again, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop the ball because I can't remember. I know that they were looking for for a long while for evidence of bosons. Essentially, is where we think fundamental charge comes from. And I think, uh, let me not be wrong about this. We should probably look it up while we're sitting here. I don't remember if there is sufficient evidence to believe in it. I think there is. There's other stuff. There's dark matter slash dark. Energy. Yeah, dark matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which. I have like a running bet with somebody that there is no dark matter. And I haven't looked into it again for almost does, a decade. At this so point. does that really make a big difference? Like if it, if it exists or doesn't exist? Like does everyday yeah. life really change? Like does then like does the universe disappear or some theory gets disproven? It's like it's one or the other. Yeah, it kind of has to be something. So so what what happens is cosmology is a weird beat. Um essentially there are, you know, our understanding of Big Bang and the birth of the universe and all of this stuff is that there are a bunch of weird things that we sort of wave hands at where you say, all right, well, there was a period where the universe seemed to expand faster than the speed of light. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But here we are. And like everything else holds together. You kind of assume that. And, you know, at, at the moment, if you look at the relative motion of all the stars and galaxies, they seem to be. It's, it seems to be like there's this missing mass where you'd have to add this mass for, this, for the motion that we have to make any kind of sense. 
Um, and so they sort of went looking for it. And when I was in grad school, I think they thought it was like the mass of one of the neutrinos was all the missing mass. It turned out to not be the case. And um, I'm trying to remember. There's a, there's a number of candidates that keep getting knocked down. And so help me if there was one that was proven to be it. It's not my fault. I haven't looked at it in a while. But, but again, that's to resolve a fundamental conflict, which is if I look at all the luminous matter, what I think is all the non-luminous matter in the universe, and then I look at the like, accelerate, relative acceleration of everything, it looks like there's missing stuff. And it could be a lot of things. Um, you know, if I, I pick something out of the hat, I say, no, it's not missing matter. It's a second order term in the gravitational or something. It's like, well, there's a, um, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's another term where gravity isn't just like one over r squared. And, uh, it doesn't just pull like that. There's also a really long range one that only sort of turns on at a really gigantic distance. Um, and that has to be added into, and that would fix it as well. And so people would say, like, that's a very classic physics thing to do. Somebody goes, yeah, my cosmology is broken. Uh, all the relative motions of things aren't quite right. and I don't know what would make that happen. And a theorist will go, ah, I know. If I added another thing onto gravity that basically turns on at a long distance, maybe that would fix it. And then that becomes a standing hypothesis until somebody knocks it down. They go, okay, well, how are we going to test that? Um, and the answer is probably a bunch of, like, relative analyses of distant points or whatever and how they're moving relative to one another. I don't know if that one's actually been knocked down or not. Um, but that's the sort of thing that happens is basically somebody goes, yep, we're done. Physics is done. Nope. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Something's weird and it doesn't really line up. Um, and this happened with a standard model of physics. That standard, you know, quarks and gluons and all of that. That um, for a while we thought physics was just done because every kind of one of these calculations where you'd go and look at reactor or scattering outputs would just be perfectly correct. And so for a genuinely, and I don't quote me on this, but I think it's 40 years, we just assumed that sort of physics was over. We found the last thing, we're done. And then people started to find violations of it. I think somebody just found a violation of the magnetic moment of the muon, very small but present, and they had to look for a very long time to see it. Um, but it suggests there's more than the standard model. There really are other forces out there. There's either other forces out there, or there are small deviations that we didn't expect. Um, and so that back and forth, you know, thing is done, wait, thing is a little bit violated. Okay, why could that be? And theorists kind of go, well, what if there was an extra particle? What if there was a different force? Well, what if there was a different, like, strength to this force? Okay, well, what if only under these conditions this thing happened? And then, you know, they sort of pile off all of these, like, plausible theories that would explain all the data we have, and then they have to go figure out uh, what to do to then separate um, they say, well, you said there was another particle. Okay, if there was another particle, what would it have to be like? Have to be like this. Okay, we'll go look. Just go look and see if we can find that particle. And if we can't, then we throw that one out. And people kind of do this over the course of a whole career. And so as a result, things move, but they kind of move quite slowly, but, but carefully. Um, so I have a, so yeah, so I have a running, um, I have a running bet that eventually instead of dark matter, it will be, another force or an extra term on an existing force. Um, what's, what is the one of the big yet? 
again. What does a win or the bit get? It was like ten bucks. It was 10 not. Bucks it was not. It was not. It was bit. Yeah, it was non interesting. Um, so, so next question. Since beginning the time, the smartest people around always been proven wrong. Like you know, back in the day, all the smartest people thought the world was flat. Of course, that's wrong. Back in the day, smartest people in the world thought you know the universe revolved around the Earth. So, question is, what is like the most people take as like ground truth to truth today? Everyone says this is correct that you think is actually wrong. It's going to be proven wrong in the future. Oh, gosh. So, like I said, I think I'm a believer sort of in simulation theory because of that, you know, if you did make a simulation. I made a lot of simulations. So, you know, if you did make a simulation. I mean, you, you can't prove yeah. it's wrong or right, can I, you? I, I can't, but there are suggestive elements. And, and, and one of them is if I, were to, yeah, if I were to make a simulation, I would do two things for sure. I would, A, use fluid dynamics everywhere that, a, that any kind of conscious observer wasn't. And B, I would make there to be sort of a fundamental pixel size so that even if, even if we were called upon to look further and further and further and further, at some point, you would find the limit of the floating point, uh, the, the, the floating point resolution. And both of those seem to be actual in the real universe. So I'm not saying that happens, but that's a, that's a possibility. I, for the record, I don't care. Like, I mean, I care, but I don't care i don't feel like it makes the idea of consciousness less relevant you know uh, that i think all the arguments for consciousness are still the case even if technically the universe is simulated um and that raises the question of consciousness oh also a thing that i think people are concerned about that hasn't happened yet is conscious ai so this happened once with convolutional neural nets and it's happening again with generative textual ai um Basically, we made systems that mimic parts of your own neuronal system. So um, the convolutional neural net essentially is a system, of, um, a system of neural net layers where each of them expects to take uh, parts of an image and sort of abstract them into how much they look like um, a filter. And then this happens in several layers, so it's a highly abstract thing that comes out the other end. Um, but it sort of has meaningful connection to what was in the image. And because of that, we were able to do all of this wonderful new computer vision stuff that was just impossible before that. Super specific and difficult. Um, and people were a little bit freaked out. They're like, computers can make decisions based on looking at a thing. That feels human. And that feels like there's no way to do that without being human. But eventually people kind of settled down and went, no, it, what we've built is basically an eye. Now we have an eye that we can um, and it can do things like tell you what is a dog and what is not a dog. And so that was useful, but it, it didn't add up to like a conscious system. And this is happening again where basically we're generating a speech sensor. Fundamentally, all these algorithms um, are still trained on an input and an expected set of outputs. So it's still really a machine learning system. And what it's doing is predicting what a human would say next. On a fundamental level, that's a lot like a speech center of your brain. It's a part of the ability to have actual consciousness and self-awareness, but it didn't, doesn't by itself constitute that. Um, I mean, it's evidenced by weird, you know, well, again, somebody who knows neuroscience better than me should probably correct me on this, but it seems to me that there's a lot of those systems where, you know, people will talk in their sleep or just randomly if they're just waking up, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm unclear whether or not that is simply a speech center disconnected from some conscious awareness, just sort of freewheeling. Um, anyway, so that's 
So that's another thing that I think, I think I understand how to get to conscious AI, but I don't think where we're going right now will do it. So I'm less concerned about that than I am. Do you see a future like way down the road where we have like AI conscious robots like voting and being like full-fledged citizens with eco rights and stuff like that? This is really tough. Um, the cynical answer is somebody, somebody said, well, you know, at what point do we have to give AI rights? And I'm like, well, we're not great at giving like all the people rights. So it's probably going to be a while. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a horrible answer. I, I think hopefully, I at least think there are way better philosophers than me, but I at least think that it is something intrinsic about the model of the self and the, the internal model of the self and the internal model of the universe containing the self, which has an internal model of the self and so on, um, that is the seat of at least functional consciousness. So if those things that we take to be fundamentally human, like the drive to live and to understand and so forth, become the driving forces of like the training function of a larger of a larger AI system, that that will allow the natural best adaptation to be an intrinsic map, an intrinsic uh, internal model of the self. Like basically a latent internal model of the self will, will develop when there's enough space for it and a need for it because the system itself like wants to survive and reproduce, understand. If we put those needs in as the, as the training function, on top of a driver system, my suspicion is that we'll be eventually able to develop consciousness. I'm really concerned about having said that because I think that's how it happens and I don't know if we want to do that or not. That's a really open question. Um, I think that's how it would happen. And if it does, then it feels like we're out of reasons to not consider a machine conscious alive. But we don't have to do that. It's a heavy conversation. I'm concerned we're just not going to have that conversation. We'll instead just do it and have to deal with the consequence. So, there's, of course, a lot of concern with AI, ML, machine learning, all kind of stuff, like impact society. My thing is, like, how do we make sure the people coding this stuff is, like, all ethically, morally, you know, correct people, right? Is it, like, I'm like, is that kind of standard out there? Some certification, like, can like you just learn how to code and like you might be a bad person and put like biases and stuff. Like, how do we stop that? Or is, or is it like, or can we stop it? I think we can. We we need more. We need. I was going to say we need more discussion. We need more careful discussion around this. It's it's easy to go either direction. Say, nah, don't worry about it. It's just a system. It'll do its best. We'll work with it. It's like any other thing. Or like we really need to like put. You know, we really need to put external you know, guidelines on this, even though those guidelines might not be aware of the way that the systems really are. Um, there, there are some errors that are just straight screw-ups. Like, nobody tried to do them. It happened because we screwed up and we didn't think about it. Like, the, cl the classic thing where, well, I want to make a face recognition algorithm. What do I have? Well, I'll just pull this, the first 10,000 faces I get off of Google. Oh, it turns out that's not really evenly distributed among the population. So there's some people that were really good at finding and some people that were very bad at finding, for better or worse. Now, now we have an unequal thing. And no one wants to do that one, right? So like, just, you just like 
stop screwing up. You basically figure out that this happens. And one of the ways that you do this is to say, all right, um, in the end, I have a set of people that does represent basically everyone. Uh, the system needs to do well in all of them. And if it doesn't, it's going back until it does. Um, and that is the, the basis, I think, of what we ought to do. Because it's really difficult to assign strict human-like rules. In fact, we gave up a lot of that for the modern AI era. Um, what we can do is, is give a lot of things by example. And it's those sets of examples and validation sets that we need to be talking about. So like everyone thinks in terms of Asimov's laws. I go to sci-fi cons and I talk, you know, these the subjects all the time. And everyone is still convinced that Asimov's laws sort of are in effect. But that, those were from a time when we thought that consciousness was sort of going to be a series of trees of like yes, no decisions that eventually led to a, an outcome or a decision. Um, and so as a result, something very specific like don't do this ever would work. In the modern system, almost all of the, um, basically all of the behavior sets is a set of matrix multiplication where you only have maybe input of what you're seeing right now and input of the history that's happened before. And you have to make a decision like a self-driving car or something. And fundamentally, there's no way to tell it you have now heard a person except to simulate this a million times and have a negative, have a strong negative happen when you hit a person. But so as a result, you cannot train one of these and then say, under all conditions in the future, it will never hit a person or never make the decision to hit a person. You instead have to have really strong challenge sets where people are in there and it fails if it hits any people. Um, even at that, that probably just makes it human and hopefully superhuman, especially talking about something to hurt people. Um, but it's tough because that conversation is hard to start to say like, oh no, I, I know what you're saying. You want it to never decide to like hit somebody because that would hurt somebody, but it doesn't have an understanding of what hurting people is. And it can only have an understanding of essentially you give it loads of examples of that happening or loads of situations in which it could happen and reward it for having that not happen. But that means some very difficult things. Like it wants to get to the proper place in a reasonable amount of time. So it wants to drive according to the rules of the road, but also fairly, you know, as quickly as it can. But it also doesn't want to hit anybody. And neither of those things can be zero or infinity. The knee-jerk response is to say, if it hits somebody, it's like negative infinity. But it tends to break the algorithm because if you really do that, it'll say, okay, well, negative infinity is bigger than anything else, so I will never move again. Let me ask you this real fast. Yeah. Suppose it says, not to hurt, any, hurt anyone, mm -hmm. right? But it sees a human riding a bicycle and it says, okay, it's a human, but it's on a bicycle. If I hit it, I'm hurting the bicycle, not the human. Well, but, but see, that's the thing. At least, at least for the moment, it doesn't really reason in that way. Okay. It... it, it um, the fact is that we've made, you know, the internal guts of it are essentially a little bit difficult to assay. And so we've made a thing that does a really good job at like not hitting people. It's never seen a bicycle before. At that moment, if we do it or we simulate it, we kind of don't know what it will do. Because what we know that it is not doing is saying, aha, I have recognized a person, but it is on a bicycle. And this is a, you know, and, and this combination of things, I need to figure out what to call it. Is that a person or is that a bicycle? We could probably at this point make systems that do that. But at least up until this point, they've instead just been, you know, instead the thing will do whatever it does, which we sort of don't know because there haven't been any examples yet. And so that's that the, the importance of when you said like basically 
can we make sure these things are doing what we want and they're not nefarious or like heavily biased? We essentially need really big example test sets and really big challenge sets. And those things we should fight over intensely. Um, but it's difficult because if it were humans, we want to just write this stuff in words and have it be absolute. Like, don't murder anybody. Yeah, we all know what that is. Yeah, even, even if you murder a person who's on a bicycle, yeah, that's still murdering somebody. So don't do it. And you can tell a human being that and we are sophisticated enough to go like, yeah, they meant even if they're on a bike. Yeah, even if they're in a hot air balloon, still don't murder somebody. Um, but the system basically needs to be shown people in a hot air balloon so that we can be 100% sure that it will still not murder them. And the number of scenarios that that encompasses is very big. So basically, anyway, that, that's at least my conclusion. The idea of model validation out of sample sets where we, where we challenge them very hard where it's like, you can't train on this set. This is all the people on bicycles and in you know, hot air balloons. You can put people on bicycles and hot air balloons in your set when you train it also, but like, these are special. You can't, you know, you can't cheat and like, look at the test answers first. We're going to give you a bunch of challenges and you need to pass that to come out and be, you know, embodied in the world, like to the AI system. Like you have to pass all of these. If you hit the person on the bike, it's still fail. You got to go back and we have to train you harder and for more things. And if that were the conversation, and I hope it becomes it, I think we're going to do okay with those. So I want to give you a chance to brag about yourself real fast. <laughs> Talk about something that you've, so you've done a lot of great things in your career. Talk about something you've accomplished that you're really proud of. Gosh, this is a question of picking something. Um, what I really like. Oh, so um, there was someone when I was at, um, at Pioneer Square Labs who came in who wanted to be uh, a CEO of a new company, but he didn't really know how he was going to make that company technologically. He said, I've been a CFO, a financial officer, for the bulk of my career at this point, and there's a terrible problem that everybody has, and it is um, that closing, closing the books out at the end of the month. And this would seem easy. You just need to say, like, well, here's our point of sale record and here's our bank record. But sometimes it's like, what if somebody bought a thing, returned it for store credit, then bought another thing with the store credit? Now you have three point of sales and like one you know, daily bank record or like a bank correction. So there's all these very complex things. And at best, the best software anyone has made will do maybe 60% of these, the easy 60%. And so there are people just stuffed into offices um, having to you know, go cross-eyed at spreadsheets all day. And that's basically their job is like have to, have to like collect all the books up. So what do we do? And I remember vividly, I went away for a weekend. And for the first day or two, I actually just wasn't trying to do this. I'm like, well, maybe we can do procedural stuff. Maybe we can work at it. And then it occurred to me, if there was a solution, a set of rules, like procedural rules, by which you could answer this question, they must conform to a limited set of, to, to a limited set of symbolic representations. So basically, like, I would say the sum of, you know, if there's ever going to be a match, the sum of the stuff on this side has to equal the sum of the stuff on this side in terms of price. And also, if there's ever going to be a match, then all of this UID number has to equal all of this UID number. And, you know, whatever that magic resolvey set of rules is, it has to live in a, in a limited symbolic space. And if that's true, then I can call it the answer to a machine learning question, which we can then train based on the data. And we made it work 
And we went from like 60%, which was the best tech on the market, to like 95 in a week. I was so happy about that. That ended up becoming a company. Um, it was called Sigma IQ. And, um, and that, that system worked. So it was, it was just off the wall. I sometimes have a hard time characterizing that because it was sort of supervised machine learning and it was sort of just random skunk works thinking and it was sort of applied statistics and it was sort of symbolic reasoning. We just kind of threw it together. And that, I don't know, <clears throat> it means that this is why working at uh, the early stage is great. This is the sort of thing that it's very difficult to make fly at larger organizations. When you get to wear a lot of hats, especially in the early stage, risks are high. It also means that the acceptance of unusual approaches is very high, and sometimes you just hit one, and it, and it works. Like that. I, was, I was very happy about that one. So from your point of view, is there any part of society, any kind of a business or anything that would not be affected by AI, or AI is going to be like, like, you know, I joke around, like, it's easier to raise, if you want to raise a VC fund route, just say your food truck to AI, right? Like, like <laughs> AI, I know AI, AI is in farming, ranching, different things. Like, is there any part of the site you think would not be affected by AI? It's, it's genuinely hard to think of one if there is. I mean, this is, if this were, this were 2000 and, this were 2000 or 1999. You'd ask me this about, uh, like, internet and code. I would say probably not. Like, sure, there'll be some, no, no, I was about to say, well, maybe if you're making wine in a classic way, and then, but no, you still have like all these, you know, online systems that are helping you, all this like online delivery, logistics. It's hard, it's hard for me to imagine. I feel like this is about as big as that. Like if, or, or if you said the cloud, if this is, um, when would that be? This is like 2009 or something. And you're like, this thing, the cloud, is that going to, is there anybody who's going to be untouched by it? I'll say there will be a lot of people who aren't directly touched by it in that they're not sitting there like writing cloud infrastructure. And in this case, they're not sitting there like interfacing directly with an AI all the time. Um, but the underlying pieces, people had stuff they wanted to get done. And the enablement that they now have, um, at least in principle, based on the technology, is probably going to be pretty total. I, I, I bet it's everywhere. Yeah, because right now I'm raising like a PC round for my own startup. And of course, you do have a research VCs, whatever. I came across a one, one startup, basically what they did, they helped ranchers predict like future, you know, output of milk cows, from, milk from cows, mm -hmm. all, all this different scientific stuff. Like, man, this is like, if ranchers are doing it, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I, to be fair, we're, we're, we, might not, we might not call it what we're calling it now. We're about to enter, I think, the end of the hype wave for some of this stuff. And the reason is because it's a little bit overbought. So. Um, to, to, to put that more bluntly, a bunch of people are right now starting AI systems that probably won't work. And the reason is because the underpinnings are going to be harder than they think. So very commonly at this point, right? One of the ways to get money is, yeah, is just to go, Hey, uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use AI, basically the modern LLM to like yeah. teach your kids and say whether or not you should go to oncology or not. And, and change and, your, instead of being like WW, um, blank.com make it www.blank.ai yeah just the kind of yeah, it doesn't of, really mean your AI come just because you have AI across your same thing yeah or like you know uh, solve your you know uh, you know organize your calendar and buy you airline tickets and everything else and the fact is that while the technology is quite good it's still a little bit janky unless you really have a lot of containment for it 
And there's a lot of techniques for this. I don't think we have time to probably get into, but like retrieval augmented generation and, um, you know, iterative like prompt chaining and like double checking and like tripwires and, um, you know, memory structures and so forth. There are all these, you know, things that the state of the art and the, the, the intersection of, of data science and, uh, and engineering is doing to sort of make it good. But yeah, if you say, hey, um, I'm going to review your entire medical record and say whether or not you might have cancer and we should look at that. That thing can never be wrong. It can't be wrong even once. And right now it's going to be wrong a lot. And there are people, I think, without naming any names, there are, there are definitely people out there right now who have sold that idea, whatever it is, pick, pick one of those, who their current technological stack is going to look like, well, chat GPT, and then that's it. I'll just tell chat GPT all the stuff we know, and then I'll ask it a question. It's not nearly good enough for something like that. And there are ways to do it, but it's hard enough that a bunch of people are going to start running and just fall immediately. And it's going to get a black eye because of this. Venture capitalists, I think, will recoil and doubt. Don't put that completely in stone, but somewhere in there, there's going, there's going to be a pullback where people go, oh, oh dear. Um, just saying you're going to use AI, it turns out, was not a good bet. You couldn't just make that your entire pitch. And actually, AI companies, they actually use a whole lot of computing power, right? Oh yeah, no. There's, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of very interesting techniques that come off of this. I mean, all the you know similarities and embeddings. And again, I, I'm happy to dig into any of that if you like. But like all, but all of these things are, are real and they're powerful and they're like highly empowering to um, additional technologies or you know additional things that we would have had a hard time doing right now otherwise. Um, but it's the classic ninety five percent problem that if you can make a system that's right 95% of the time for a few things, that's okay, but often not at all. It's, it's like, you know, imagine, imagine a thing that manages your calendar and like puts all your stuff in order and it's right 95% of the time. So one in 20, you miss a meeting or the thing just doesn't happen. That's not nearly good enough, right? That means every week or something, something falls completely through and you have to apologize. Like, no, you're, you're not going to use and that's still 95% good. So essentially, I don't know. I think from a funding perspective, people are going to expect a lot more bona fides, and maybe that will require a change of language. Tends to. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I could be wrong. My suspicion is the hype wave is about cresting right now. And so, but you see the winners on the way down, right? They basically... A bunch of people will pull out to stop funding so many people, but then we'll figure out who really had it where it counts. You know, in, in, in two years or something, you actually will have a couple of products that really do the trick. Everyone uses them and they're fine. We'll just figure out who those winners are. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily bad, but this is also why startups are a bloodbath all the time. It's why, it's why you always have to, you know, maybe assume that, that things are going down unless they really prove out. So this one you might not be able to talk about. If you can't, it's, it's fine. So you recently that startup that didn't make it, right? Can you talk about why that startup didn't make it? Um, I want to tiptoe around this a little bit. Okay. Um, like we can skip if you want to. Well, I think the, the, the very basic answer is with a sort of, well, maybe I can go more global with it. So with the current state of sort of macroeconomics, um, interest rates rose all of a sudden money became expensive it became difficult to like just borrow more and so this idea of 
let us stretch our expenses and you know let, let us stretch our expenses and see what pays off because the thing that pays off will pay for all of this because the interest is low and so forth um that everybody was sort of doing this and when that changed it became very hard on vendors so anyone doing like a b2b thing all of a sudden felt this incredible chop in the waters as people went yeah well could we just divest could we just not have this could we just not pay these people that would help us um and we were still doing all right um this is also my conjecture like and how long did the yeah. startup last how long were your business so to speak oh i think i was there for a couple of years and okay. we were there for longer than that so i want to say like Okay, so not like you started and three months later you shut it down. It was, yeah, like, no, it was going I, on for a little bit. Yeah, I was definitely there for a while. And frankly, I think they had a great product and um, that it worked and it did what it wanted or it did, it did what it was supposed to do well and everybody liked it. It's just we entered into, again, my view, um, we entered into a market that was like really hostile just at the time where we needed to hit like high growth. And so it was a, it was a poor match. That sort of thing happens all the time. Like often this is... Yeah, I mean, under, time is a big time yeah. is a big thing with startup mm -hmm. success, right? People don't talk about that enough. I think, like, the start time is a lot with it. Yeah, and it's just it's funny, right? Because in the in the dramatizations, the story is like, oh, the CEO was terrible, and they like torpedoed this thing, and and then everything fell apart, and they made bad decisions. But no, no, everybody there was great. CEO is fantastic. Um, I don't think any wrong decisions were made. I think literally product market fit just kind of started to slip wasn't really anyone there's fault um which is sad it, it's it's tough because if you stick around in startup land you're gonna see a bunch of those happen and you'll just go well nobody's fault i we just rolled the dice wrong yeah and, I, I've, you know. I've seen I, I was a startup like that before when i first got into overall tech just i mean everything was there right and didn't make mm -hmm. it right i know other friends i mean perfect team everything perfect got fun in this like like what happened right how did we fail like but it happens yeah, yeah no that that happens a lot or um like for example i think it will be again like i said maybe nine months i mean don't uh let me not be wrong about this because i just threw out an actual number but sometime in there it's going to be like a lot harder to fund a business that is predominantly just an ai thing unless you have a very dramatic differentiator um oh there's another thing differentiator is another thing you sort of need to come equipped with explain why you're different and or what sort of moat you have where other people couldn't just do it. Or why Google's not going to do this. Yeah, why Google's not just going to do it in five minutes. I've certainly... I mean, what, what's the answer there, right? Like, what are you going to say, well, I mean, we're going to be faster than them or Google's not interested? Like, I mean, if uh, Google, Amazon decides what you're doing, like, what, I remember yeah. the stop your saddle where they, they, they were doing a calendar and six months later, Google Calendar came out and of course, data shut down. Oh yeah, no, this, this has totally happened. I mean, um, retrieval augmented generation. Probably one of the biggest stories. So, okay. So really quick. Um, the, uh, so large language model, right? Normally, you know, chat GPT, you put in so much text beforehand. This is getting bigger, but it's still limited. Um, you put in a bunch of text beforehand, and then you say, here is the context. It's these paragraphs. Here's the stuff that you know extra well. And then I'm going to ask this questioner. I'm going to ask you to do a thing about it. Um, but what if, you know, what if you have all of Wikipedia, the entire works of Shakespeare or something like that, and you want to ask questions of them and the classic answer, which is classic, answer, like, like it was long ago, right? This is like months ago or something that is still being developed. This thing called retrieval augmented generation. The other, 
The other thing that large language models have is a way for you to take any piece of text and cram it down into a relatively limited size vector where similar texts go to similar vectors. And the reason why that's important is because you chunk up the entire works of William Shakespeare or all of Wikipedia or both into pieces and you do that embedding and you put them all into like a vector database. And then when you ask your question, you put it in that same vector space and see which ones are like the closest nearest neighbors that seem, those are the things that sort of seem most relevant. You pull out as many of those as you can afford and make that the context. And this was way better than trying to guess or trying to use regular expressions to pull those pieces out or whatever. It's still not perfect and there's been a lot of work um, on, on my part too to try and develop those techniques. Um, but that was so hot and new that basically it, it meant, hey, do you have like all these corporate documents or all of your contracts or whatever? Why don't you just put them all in the hopper and then you can talk to them like they're a chatbot. If you ask questions, we'll figure out the appropriate bit, so, you know, put that into the, put that into like the, the, the context window and then you can ask a question and almost certainly get the correct answer. Now we have all the relevant pieces of text that sort of put in there. Um, so people started like rolling out um, tools and companies kind of based on that. And like a second later, it's now just a thing that's in, you know, it's in OpenAI's playbook. And so in some sense, I think there were a lot of, there were a lot of hopes smashed on those rocks of like, this is a really good idea. It just happened. It's really smart. Let's do it. But then nothing was really going to stop the big players from just, it was a good idea. Um, and it didn't take very long to implement. So they just kind of did it. Now it's, you know, now it's not a thing you're probably going to go to a third party for. And I assume there will be more of those. And where the line is, where you know if your thing is good enough that like a Google or an open AI or whatever won't just do it, seems to be, A, if you have some kind of a data moat. What I mean by that is like data that you have that no one else has. Sometimes it's literally bought. Like, well, I'm working with somebody that has access to this entire, you know, expensive legal collection that they have rights to look at or something. You know, some, something like that that will work out legally in your favor. Um, is one way. Um, another is if you really think you have something that's groundbreaking and you can bring it out fast enough that when it comes time to make the decision, instead Google tries to buy you or use you. So that's the other classic answer is, well, all right, but Google hasn't thought of this. This is really our thing. We're new. And by the time we get this out, um, yeah, but the, the, the big players will essentially make that buy versus build decision and say, yeah, we need to put 20 people on this four months, six months to make it happen. It's actually cheaper to just either buy the company or become a customer of the company. And sometimes that happens. That's like you know, one of the big sort of success stories that tends to happen. Let me ask you this. Like suppose, how do we, how do we fix this or make it equal or equal opportunity? Or maybe you don't, right? So suppose you're in Seattle, you're a kid in Seattle, right? Suppose you're 13, 40 years in Seattle. Hmm. Even you live like a disadvantaged neighborhood, right? You still have access to all this stuff, right? But then suppose a 14-year-old kid is in like, you know, a small town Iowa with 300 people and there's a bunch of farms, right? And there's like no tech, right? Like, how do we make, make the playing field equal? Or is this the way it is, you know? Like, yeah, this is, this is another one of those painful things. I mean, I, I want to say, and I got to think about this. If you plot the trajectory of like tech access, it seems to look better with time. I mean, so what I was about to say, um, I thought you were saying, well, you know, you're a kid in the city, you don't have a lot, um, but, you know, you, maybe you have access to, like, maybe you have a phone and, you know, 
Yes, and so you like, say you have access to you know all these meetups, all these tech things going on. You know, like yeah, catch, you can catch a bus from somewhere to you know, meet up or gaming stuff. You know, yeah. And I, and I was about to say, well, the nice thing is that it's made a lot of things easier to um, like easier to jump into. Like for example, while it is not perfect code, um, uh, ChatGPT and the GPT series, or the other ones, Llama derivatives, the other, you know, Bard, etc., will write you code for things. And at the moment, it'll be kind of okay. Sometimes it won't work, um, but it's a profound. It's it's the ability to jump right in with essentially a tutor that's kind of okay, as long as you understand that it's only sort of okay. So the wall that used to be up around you know, a kid who's going to say, I really want to learn something. I, everybody says Python is great. I want to learn Python and start, start coding something, but I don't really know how to begin. Um, is at least not going to have to start on like a book and a tutorial and like Stack Overflow, a really hard road. At least they have sort of this extra thing. But the fact is that if you don't have, if you don't have access to that, there could be a, like a relatively steep wall of capability. I mean, because if I, you know, what I, what I basically just motivated is this idea that almost no matter who you are, you kind of have a little tech knowledge of everything now because you have this thought partner that will help you along. Um, that happened to me. I was so, so at web scraping and I'm better now because I have this additional thing I can run everything by and be like, wait a minute, I wanted to add some piece. Um, that and, you know, code assistance. So things that I was good at, I'm still good at, but things that I was mediocre at, I'm kind of good at now also because of this. But if that's really the case, then there there's this unscalable wall, isn't there? Like, and if I say, well, even if you have a little bit of interest and a little bit of tech, you're basically an okay engineer if you want. That's really neat. Um, but if you have no exposure to this at all, now what are you going to do? Like, everyone in the world is an engineer if they want to be except you. I, don't know what we do about that. Yeah, that's not a good place to be if you're that person, I think. Yeah, I... Yeah, I don't know. I, my understanding is, at least in some places, and this is, this is difficult because of how we fund education, um, I know at least in some places they're attempting to get kind of low, mid-level like, tech into students' hands, even if they don't have it. So, you know, do it, like Chromebooks and stuff that they, that they sort of try and make part of uh, people's education. This is really tough. I, yeah, I. There's definitely a, a hard problem that we got to solve, I think. I was surprised, oh, this is not having children myself. This is a thing that I unfortunately did not know into my 30s. Embarrassing thing to not know. But I didn't know that the way they funded schools was not collect all the money from the state, then dole it back out depending on how many kids there were. I just assumed not that was, all, yeah. I was always very confused. I mean, confused. that would make better yeah. sense, you know, because, you know, put it all together because, you know, society's kids, everybody just not this property tax, you know. So obviously, you know, example I use, you know, there's a neighborhood in Dallas called um, Highland Park, like Million Dollar Homes. Mm -hmm. And there's like South Oak, Dallas, South Oak Cliff in Southern Dallas is you know, like poor neighborhood, right? Of course, education standards like vastly different, even though it's technically the same city. Yeah, no, that's nuts. I, uh, it's one of those things that I, I you know, it, it speaks poorly to me because I didn't know because I didn't really look into it, but I would never have even imagined that that was the way we did that. Yeah, I mean, you think that's the reason why people look for houses and they have young kids, they, the school system is the biggest thing, you know, not, not the location or price of the house is like, 
how the schools. Yeah, I didn't even realize um, when I was young. I didn't. Uh, I didn't understand people who I would meet who went to a good school. I, I, schools I went to were fairly marginal, frankly. Um, and then I, you know, met people or like had relationships with people who went, no, high school was great. I learned all this stuff. I had all these programs. I'm like, it, how did that work? How did that happen? And I think it was somewhere in there in like my early 30s. Somebody went, well, I mean, you know, some some schools have lots of money and some yeah. have almost none. I'm like, how? Don't they just? No, they do yeah. not. And so there's a video on social media about a month ago, a month ago where these high school kids did a tour of the high school, right? Yeah. And then they had like, it's like, it was like a college, right? Like, it was like a. 50,000 foot football stadium, 10,000 foot basketball court. Like, it, you mean like this, this is comparable with Duke University, right? Of course, they ever saw it, but I was like, this is not a high school, right? You know, like this, our high school, we can't even like put the, keep the lights on, you know? So just a disparity, you know? Like this high one high school, like all brand new MacBooks that students get to take home. We have like, we have one, one Chromebook for 10 students, you know? So this is a disparity. And then people, why, why, you know, all the unequal stuff is going on. Yeah, I guess, like, if there's one thing, if there's one thing that I would fix, maybe there are ways, it, it would be that. I would want, essentially, the, the baseline platform and access capabilities to be in their hands no matter what. You know, at least you, you basically have some system with which you can interface with the internet and some yep. access to the new stuff. And it is, in some sense, really great, because on one hand, the bar is kept going down if you have those things. Yeah. But it's it means that the you know, it means the playing field is like horrendously off balanced if you don't have those things. If like you do not have a way to have a keyboard and a screen that gets you into yeah. the modern AI systems, then you just you're you're sliding back a year with every year and everyone yeah. else is like tinkering with like, it and yeah, figuring like, it like out. Like you're a high school student now you have no no access to a computer at home. Like man, how do you even like do your homework? How do you like compete right without a basic computer at home? Yeah, no, this is this is super tough. If, if there's, yeah, there's one thing where I, where I think if I could only pick one thing that basically we would throw more funding. It'd probably be that. So moving on, mm. can you talk about some of your mentors you've had through your career? Yeah, yeah. Um, so as I said, um, was Professor John Abley, who I worked with, um, and it just it like encouraged me in every direction. He was awesome and. One of, the, one of the things was the idea of automation of data collection, which really defined a lot of my later career. So I'm very glad that that was a thing. And he, like, trusted me as a kid. And when was I? I when I actually met him, I would have been 16, 17. Um, I went a little bit earlier. Um, but he basically still trusted me to automate this lab where, you know, that was burning a lot of expensive cryogens and working with a basically priceless, you know, object and, and all these things that we had to do. Um, and I remember vividly, I wasn't sure if I was going to go to grad school because taking the GRE then. Turned out I did go, but um, at the time I was just agonizing over like, well, I could go get a job. You know, I le I've learned how to program here. Like I could go and like there's this, you know, there's this new tech boom that's really happening. It's the end of the 90s. Like, should I do that instead? Should I take a few years? And he just, um, he just listened to me with like this sort of, you know, sage air to him. I must have done this for half an hour sitting in the lab, like tweaking stuff. Just, well, what if I do this? What would you do? Would you think that, you know, would the paycheck be higher if I waited? And he just waited for like half an hour of this until I'd blown it all out. And he goes, 
John, like, it's obvious to me that what you're really looking for is happiness. And I went, yeah, no, I guess that's true. And I, I don't know why, but that has stuck with me to this day. Like, it's going to be kind of, it's going to be kind of difficult to tell from a thousand yards where happiness is. But if you know you're kind of going for it, you should figure out what brings that to you and try and go after that. Anyway, so that became like one of my touchstones because I overthink everything and overtalk everything. Um, yeah, um, also Professor uh, Toby Burnett from University of Washington, who was just fantastic. And again, like very, very encouraging in the direction of creativity mathematically. Um, of learning mathematically, and um, he did that great thing that your, your major professor, especially in grad school, is supposed to do, which is you'd go in to his office every week for like your formal interaction, and he would just absolutely beat everything you think you know to death. It was great. It was, this, is, this is what should happen. A lot of physics is really complex, and so the, you know, going in there and going, well, I read all these papers, here's what I think, here's what I think could happen, Here's how I understand this. And he's just like, no, well, I mean, you're right for you're, about a third of that you're right on. But because you think this, I want you to read this book and all of that stuff. I knew it was a lot of work. Um, professors who are great like that do this and, um, and he did it really well. Um, gosh, I guess I, I you know, there, there are definitely more. Um, as if I could pick on a few more from the venture world, uh, somebody named T.A. McCann, who you might also know, he's yeah, know well-known. Yeah, um, just a force of nature. Um, and he was sort of more formally my mentor for, I think, around a year than my tenure at Pioneer. And I don't know how to describe him other than that he's like the the the... He's like the unstoppable force that you like, want to have happen. You know, I talk to him every time and do my normal. I'm spinning myself up. I'm overthinking it. I'm not sure which way to go. And he just go, well, you want this, right? Yeah. Well, then obviously you should go and try and get that. And again, I just go, well, I, yeah, no, you're right. And there is an obvious way, isn't there? And then I'd go and I'd push on that and I'd try and make it happen. Um, but I assume, I don't know what I assume yeah, he's just he's he's a wonderful person. He's still pretty involved with all, all the tech startup stuff, isn't he? Oh yeah, very much. He, very he's much. still at Pioneer Square Labs, I think. Yeah, yeah, and that's. Um, I, I think I think he started it, didn't he? Uh, I know. I think. It was don't a, quote a, me on this. It was definitely Greg Ottisman was definitely part of it, and I wanted to call him out. Fantastic person. Um, Jeff Entrus, maybe, and I think TA also. Okay, yeah. But they, some people have come on board since, so I'm not a hundred percent sure what yeah. the original. Um, they had a hand in like Madrona as well. And yeah, and then like Greg Gottesman, um, also very much a mentor there, also very much like an incredible person. Um, he's kind of the, the, the image of the venture capitalist investor, somebody who shuts everything down, is kind of like a strong one. I think it's because if you ever go looking for funding, you get a lot of no's. Predominantly no. And, and actually, you're lucky if you get a no, because a lot of times you <laughs> yeah. just get ghosted. You yeah, know? you don't get You send like 20,000 emails and you whatever, like crickets. 
Yeah, you don't even get in the door. And um, if you get a no, you consider yourself lucky. Yeah, and I, and um, and Greg just like flew in the face of all that. He's talking to him. He's he manages to be excited about everything. I'm also excited about, um, and still make good decisions. And that was one of the that was one of the important things that I learned from him. because when I first entered that world, it was my perspective that one had to shut down one's enthusiasm and get really to like just validation points, just the stark reality and any kind of excitement would just skew your view. And that is like the opposite of, he's just, you know, I would get talking to him and, and often he'd be like, this is cool. This is genuinely cool. Um, what you're saying to me right now probably won't work, but if this were the case, it might. So keep thinking about it. And, and I realized like, oh no, it is exactly the enthusiasm that leads him to like, yes and ideas. But he still makes good decisions. He's still very capable of saying like, no, we're not gonna do that. Let's do something else. Um, so I, I don't know, he, he it was, you know, Greg was part of the reason why I've had such a good, good time in the startup world. Because I realized that, like that was an option. Is because there are not many data scientists in the startup world, is it? I think there's more now. Um, when I was, remember when I was, yeah, 2016 or something, when I first entered there, and one comment that I got was like, well, we don't know what to do with the data scientist. Are you an okay engineer? And I went, well, I'm a passable engineer, but I have a lot of these other skills. Nowadays, there are more. There are definitely events that if you go to are going to be fairly full of people. I think on average, if you are talking about people who were data scientists before about, in 2019, it's a pretty thin field. There are definitely people who did their careers, and myself included, in this kind of work. Um, and often we got dug out of the back of a lab someplace. But much like the boom that happened in CS learning in the early 2000s, um, there's been sort of a boom, I think positively, for people becoming data scientists sort of now-ish. Like, you know, people, people are now going to colleges, have been for a few years, going to colleges and saying, well, how do I become a data scientist? How do I become a machine learning engineer? I want to do these things and I want them to be the mainstay. So people have been making programs for it. Um, and certainly there's some crosstalk where engineers go one way or data scientists go the other. So the field isn't really blurring so much as more people are taking it as a similar track to engineering. So we're having kind of a bloom of folks that just came out as like machine learning, it came out of college or wherever they are, there's, you know, machine learning engineers, um, and they're entering the field. And then there's a number of more people. This is funny that, that, that sort of just came out as prompt engineers because of the new bloom in generative AI. I think that's actually, um, it's positive because it drove interest. There is sort of a risk in implementation because it's not just prompting that strictly necessary right now. You can do some amazing stuff with prompting, but generally maybe if you wouldn't, you know, maybe if you can't prompt chains and agent thinking and, uh, you know, rag and th these other things that bolt onto it. Um, if they're familiar with those, they're able to make some amazing things. Um, but I'm a little bit concerned that people that are sort of green in the other areas, but who really like, you know, the GPT series of large language models, um, are probably going to have, some some learning curve about that other stuff um but that's that's normal it's just um that's an unusual thing because 
it was so easy to get in modern AI from a prompt engineering perspective. So much easier than it was to get into to like ML engineering from like a supervised ML and Python and SQL. You still had to do it like a fairly heavy lift. So people have sort of, there are a number of people who just got into the industry just this second. And I want to, I want to A, welcome them, and B, say there's, there's a whole world of stuff. And you're going to like it all, but like it might be a bit of a, a lift. So like don't, don't, don't not learn that stuff because modern language models are so cool. Still learn that stuff. It's going to play really well. So back to mentoring. Are you mentoring anyone right now? You know, I don't think I am right now. I, I've had a number of students often at the National Lab and occasionally like a summer intern or something at the in startup land. I actually don't think I am. And that might be an oversight. I don't know. I, um, I, I, because, of the, because of the AI bloom, I've spent so much of my time making sort of novel uses of uh, language models for about two years that I kind of haven't been in that world. I may have to change that. Yeah, I would definitely encourage you to find someone to mentor. That'd be a good thing for you to do. So when someone comes like an like a AI machine learning person, like, how do they keep their skills? Like they have to take classes, is like updated things. It's just a matter of going to YouTube University and giving up the stuff. Like how do you like you, people like you keep up to date and like keep your skills sharp, so to speak? This is a really tough one. Um, Cause you could ask the same question of engineers, right? And that's what they'll probably say is like, well, I build things and I keep needing to build new things and there keep being new tech. So I kind of continually t spend 10% of my time learning. Um, and I'm kind of like that too. I think if there, if there is a difference, it's that some of the learning is scattered around really early sources. So, like I, you know, I read a lot of um, a lot of scientific papers that are coming out in like the AI space. Um, and part of that is because I have ideas that I want to do, and then I check and find out that yes, someone just did it, and here's how it works. Um, so do some of that. And because of that, there's aggregators. There's like a place called two minute papers online, maybe from a YouTube channel. That's someone that just sort of summarizes, um, uh, sort of some of the latest AI stuff. And that was a really good source where I would go there and say, oh, that's interesting. And then I'd go at least skim the paper. So, so some of my time's there. Um, honestly, being embedded in it is, being a little bit spoiled again because some of it's just necessary. So what I was saying about uh, RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, is one of the systems that is sort of underlying the modern use of the language model. Um, and really, I feel like it's almost been a community effort to stand this idea up. There are people doing basic research on it, sort of showing what works and what doesn't. There are people doing implementation stuff on it. Um, from a library's perspective. And then there's people doing implementation stuff on it that I've been in that, that camp doing either home rolling like different RAG systems or trying to find the best ones for, the, for an application and use them. But the fact is that, uh, I guess to stay on the edge of the wave, what you do is understand the big idea. And you have to basically go to research and Reddit and YouTube and everywhere else to kind of like understand what the big people so like rag as a concept showed up and I went, okay, this is what I've kind of been thinking too. I will hang on to this thing and watch it. And then ordinarily you'd have to go back and keep looking. But what really happens is I keep wanting to build things and I know I need one of those. 
So I'll figure out like, okay, rag system goes here. And then when it comes time to build that, then I have the sort of, um, you know, I the sort of, uh, you know, charter to go back and dig in a little harder and figure out what's new. So I keep filling in bits of like, you have to, you have to basically stay cognizant of the big ideas. And then you essentially fill in bits of knowledge by building something that uses them. And I've been pretty good about always needing to sort of go back and forth across that field. The, you, you, you know you need to stand yourself back up and spend some time learning. Start falling back of the wave. And you start hearing terms that you're not sure what they mean. Um, and you're probably spending too much time reading papers and thinking about thinking about thinking about it. When like you're, you're deep enough that you can see the new exact implementations come out, but that's not really your job. That's a painful thing to say. Like, normally my job is build things, build new products that are going to go the distance and help somebody. Um, and so because of that, some of my time has to be, has to be staying on the wave. I have to stay on the front edge of the wave. Um, and so that's kind of what I do. There's, if, if I say there's, like I could pick any number of levels, and I say there's two levels, there's understanding what all the big concepts are right now, and there's understanding deeper into those concepts. Maybe there is a third one where you're literally doing academic research on them. You stay basically at level one for everything and make sure you don't fall back of that. And, and all of that is a complete, uh, a complete random net, talking to people at start, talking to people at startups, talking to people at get togethers, getting on YouTube, going to papers with code.com and like seeing what's new. Um, and I'd say, yeah, might be, five to 10% of a week that. Is it safe to say that the United States is like leading the world in AI technology and AI, everything involved with AI? I'm actually way less certain about this. So- And a follow-up question, if we're number one, what country is like, our, like right behind our heels, like number two in all this? So, so I'm gonna bring up China, which I think is the obvious, you know, you know if, we, if we are basically sort of neck and neck with somebody, it's probably them. However, um, I know that they were sort of faster than us in implementation of machine vision back in the day. So back when it was, uh, whatever, 2017 or something, they already had a bunch of systems over there that would, you know, this is how you would go to a movie. You would just put, put money into your app that everybody used. You'd say, I want to go to this movie at this time. You buy the tickets and then you just walk in because it would see your face and understand that you were there to see that movie and open it. And those doors like wouldn't open unless you were unless you had bought a ticket and that was it. Um, and at the time, the discussions sort of around the roundtable startup land were like, yeah, we could never do that here. It's people would be freaked out. The idea that like your face is basically your fingerprint now and you're walking around with it and cameras are everywhere checking to see if you're the right person to be there. Like that's nuts. We don't really trust that. And I think for some good reason, but it also means that there's been a bunch of real implementation development that didn't have any pushback or didn't have much in that environment. So I don't know who's really winning there. It's possible that China is ahead of us in terms of some of the AI implementation space. Um, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Let me ask you this. So back in the day, there's, there's a space race between us and Russia, right? Big, yeah. big to do, right? Oh, I think some people say there's an AI race between us and China, right? Of course, a lot of people were like, no, we can't lose a China because they're, you know, they're like a communist government, dictator government, all the social media stuff they're doing, right? Social media scores, whatever. But like, does it really matter who wins the AI race? Like, isn't the AI tech out there for everyone? 
or does it really matter if we quote unquote win this or not? No, that's genuinely a good question. Um, no, I'm struggling with an answer on this. I'm actually kind of not sure whether or not it is a big deal. I mean, in some sense, we in China have sort of demonstrated the willingness to do parallel development. So in some sense, I will, you know, I, you know, we know that there's like Chinese versions of ChatGPT and other open language models that are more, you know, generally more specified to that language. And, um, and we sort of have ones as well. I guess the question is, is there a nuclear bomb around the and you know what I mean by that, right? Is that, <clears throat> so if we're just saying, hey, this is going to help everybody, don't worry about it. It's just, you know, it's like nuclear power. It's going to be clean. It's great. Everybody should develop it. And, you know, it's okay if they get it five years early enough. Maybe they'll share. It'd be fine. But if you say, actually, there's, a, there's this bugbear coming where we all expect for there to be a thing that comes when you get good enough. We really want to get good enough faster because that thing could be a weapon. They get it first. They could use it on us in some way that harms either the country or the, you know, our happiness in some way. I think honestly, now that I now that I put it together, there is such a thing. Um, I used to refer to this as the mind bomb. Um, the <clears throat> so remember what I said earlier: you can give a deep fake to someone, tell them it's a deep fake, and they still sort of it. So. In general, um, it is my understanding that it's been shown that like there are basically farm, not farms, but you know, like office blocks full of people in like Russia, where each of them is forty people on Reddit, kind of like developing relationships and being there and putting stuff on. And the idea, the concept behind that is that <clears throat> if then some influence is desired. There's maybe, you know, thousands and thousands of voices that they can all kind of make, say, a similar thing. They can basically wave a message through as though it were organic and say, ah, oh, no, everyone's talking about this now. The new meme is this that says that. And, the, I, and, and, and that's deeply concerning. And in some sense, my autistic scientist mind says it shouldn't be. Say whatever you want. But I don't have to believe it. But maybe I do have to believe it. The thing about deepfakes is true. Um, and if I do have to believe it a little bit, you know, if say you have one synthetic personality um, who says a thing in front of me that is different from what I believe, but only a little bit, so that I'm a little bit tractable, then you have won one thousandth of the way to convince me. Um, and if you then do that 999 more times, I am convinced of that thing. Then you can synthesize my beliefs and consent. And that's a deeply problematic idea. Like, that's really scary. Um, but even that required sort of cultural knowledge, the investiture in like a bunch of people. It was, it was the classic, before you fire, you know, uh, missiles at me, you have to like get your missile carrier close and I could see you doing that and it costs money and I could see you spending the money and burning the gas to get your missile carrier close. You know, um, and we hoped that that was the case, at least somewhat with sort of online influence like that. But if it isn't, if I can instead synthesize 100,000 people and with completely not touching any of these things, have those sort of 
infiltrate all the social media spaces and become people that folks like and agree with, talk to, and they're good enough that they never really drop the ball, or at least not so much that I, that I compromise this whole thing, um, then I can do that same thing that I said for almost no money. Not none, but like for almost no money, I could just say, oh yeah, no, I want community A to think thing X. And that is a machine that I can just turn on and it will make that happen. I, that feels like disruptive to the point of disaster. And I used to call this idea the mind bomb. It felt a lot like that. Us deciding that there could be this terrible weapon because it was theoretically possible. And then because we knew it was theoretically possible, we sort of decided to do it before anyone else could do it. And I think that some of the concern about who wins the AI race is that. That we all sort of know that there's this whole human cognition that can be exploited. And no one really knows how to plug that hole. So we're all considering who's going to do the exploiting first. That is such a dark thing to say. Is, I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, that, back when the atomic bomb was first made, you know, there, there are new... That was a bad thing, but like, well, if we don't make it first, Hitler's going to make it, right? So we have to, we have to make it first. Yeah, and, and that, that may have been correct. I don't, uh, this is, this feels like it's sort of above my pay grade thinking. I know how to make the thing, right? And I kind of don't want anybody to make the thing, but what happens now? Because if I know it, and you know it, then the, the counterparts there also know it. So what happens? Yeah, so back to deepfake real fast. I, I just remember this. So one, one time on the Joe Rogan podcast, they played it. Somebody did a dip pick of him doing an ad for some company, right? Yeah. And Joe was like, you know what? I've never heard of this company. I know I did not do this ad. It sounds just like me. I know mm -hmm. I didn't do this ad. I've no idea who this is. But part of me is like, is that you? Like, yeah. and it's like his own voice. Like, it's in sound just like him. Like, man, like, did I do this? I, I know <laughs> yeah, I didn't do this. I've never heard this company before. Oh, There's nothing I would do an ad for. Like, like mm -hmm. you know, he does his like his like a bullet, bullet trace whiskey. Like hot stuff, you know, UFC. Oh. Yeah, like something like off, like I think it was like candy bars, you know, like then he would never do a candy bar ad, right? And like, man, I know this is not me, but man, part of my mind is like, man, is it you, Joe? Yeah, no, the, the, ah, the power of that is, again, like what, you know, I believe at least once, once a certain level of reality is met, your brain tries to make it even more real yeah. rather than pushing it away. And so there's this, yeah, there's this like 100% no, this is fake, but you still kind of don't believe it. And the so danger is, like, you know, I've heard that it only needs, like, hear your voice, like, five seconds, right? So what he does, your steals your voice, and it calls your, like, your grandmother. Hey, Grandma Jones, I'm mm. in jail. I need $10,000. Yeah. Sit it here, right? You know, like, Ugh, I think there's so a lot of danger else. in that. I remember seeing that one come on. I used to, I used to periodically do at, at, uh, at PSL um, a roundup of the best uh, voice synthesis. Did that a few times where I'd be like, here's the very best, here's the very edge of the market. And I remember it just becoming, going from like obvious robot to not so obvious robot to almost human. Then in the, in the intervening time, it's gone to all the way human to a specific human. Um, it's amazing in some sense, but also, yeah, the, the, the fact that the immediate application space is so negative. Yeah. And then back to China, so I had a friend that lived there for 10 years. He was telling me, like, you know, like, like he said, I understand the United States, I like, kind of scale the social media score. But he said, from his point of view, it might be a good thing for China. Like, he said, he broke it out like this. In the United States, I mean, we have things wrong, but we have like a certain standard of living, right? Like, we know mm -hmm. stuff's going to work, right? 
And also in the United States, like suppose you're walking and like you take your wallet out, you drop $20, right? Odds mm-hmm. are someone's going to pick up a gift to you, right? Where you said in China, you know, it's flip the coin if something's going to work or like, you know, if, if you drop money, they're going to take it from you, right? So people like the, and he said in the United States is like most chance like highest combinator be a good person. Where China's like lowest denominator rules, right? So you said that the social media school is actually a good thing for China because it's going to make people like be aware of what they do. I don't know if I agree with that or not, but when he said like that kind of makes sense. That's interesting. I, I guess I'm, I'm not, I'm not as familiar as I should be with, uh, with Chinese culture and the sort of interactions there. I tended to know a few people who were from there or who were working there. Um, so, 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 so that's new to me, but it's, um, yeah, the point was like, no, definitely... I know you're not saying it's bad, but it's actually, he said, like, I don't agree with it. Of course it's bad, but you know, from the Chinese culture point of view, where he saw that once he lived in for 10 years, he's like, no, this actually might make sense. That's an interesting thought, at least. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the concern is basically always that... that you don't want Big no Brother what, 1984. Yeah, no matter what. It's like, at, you know, at this moment, if I, were, if I were permitted to dig through every part of your life, everything that you did, everything that you even probably thought or believed, and I was allowed to essentially come up with a summary judgment of you. How sure are you that there is nothing in there yeah. that wouldn't be considered super bad? B- bias. There's probably a bias in there too. Yeah, like I'm, I'm fairly certain. And I, again, I think this is coming from a non-neurotypical perspective, which is probably my level of, my level of concern for that, partially colored by that. And I got to admit it that it's my, you know, my ability to navigate all the normal social interaction will do okay, and it's come up from marginal. Um, maybe someday it will be basically decent, but we're not quite there yet, and I do my best. But since I kind of live in that uncanny valley that a lot of uh, people from the autism spectrum do, I have, no, I have no faith at all that that's not going to also be sort of... Uh, coherent with the idea that I'm some kind of deviant and should be taken care of or should be censured. Um, I'd be surprised if I wasn't. And I don't know. It's whatever we bought for that, whatever positivity we bought, it would have to be pretty valuable for me to be okay with that. Yeah. And I think most people in the United States do realize how often they're on cameras, right? Because walking down the street, you're on camera, you know, traffic stop cameras, you know, stores of cameras, like, only difference is like all those cameras, at least you no know, knock of wood or plastic. Hope that it's not corny. <laughs> Hopefully, no one's like controlling all these cameras and control like going from like you know a camera Macy's or camera like in the sidewalk. You know, hopefully, there's no like like mass person controlling all those cameras, like seeing everything right. But I know it's kind of like scatterbrained, so to speak, right? Yeah, no. In the in the United States, this has actually been very interesting to me. So we have since we have you know essentially a body of law and rights that at least are supposed to protect us in this way, there are a lot of those things where technically, if somebody thought you specifically did a thing, it is possible for them to synthesize such a system just for you. It's like, if they care so much and they say, hey, you know, Jason, like, stole a car and I can prove it. And the idea that then they could get the appropriate warrants, go through all the process of requisitioning video, put that video together in their lab, verify that, yes, this was your trajectory through the mall and it looks like you stole this car, whatever. Um, but we all had, 
you know, some hope that two things, you know, A, the idea is that they won't do that unless they already have some prior belief, some, you know, you know, some, some credible belief that that happened, that they wouldn't just do it to everyone up front and B that they couldn't and they couldn't just change. Right. So like, you know, right now you're right. Like the Macy's cameras probably just go to Macy's. They probably have a couple of their own algorithms trying to figure out if someone's shoplifting or whatever they do. I don't know. But, um, but they're not all one. Yeah. They're not all one system. And the opposite, the opposite system in which all of these go to the government by design, everyone's trajectory gets checked every day. They put that through like an anomaly detector to see if anyone's acting weird. They put the anomalies through like a detection system to figure out if they can find out what they're doing weird. And then they sort of have like a summary judgment that that person is weird and thus a problem is like super scary. And it's weird because technically all the tech's already there. We just hope that we have like rights and principles that stop us from doing that. And that is the people that have been more harsh on China certainly felt like that was not the case about them. And I don't feel like I can weigh in enough on that just because they they don't have too much of that knowledge. Remember back in the day when Amazon had a program where like they were like deliver packages into your house. Mm. Oh yeah. I like I don't know people like what? Like are you serious? Do you think this is a good thing, right? Or, and I guess they it wasn't a good thing. They stopped doing, yeah. of course. Like and of course they you know go in the person's house not there, you know, or just um, all the moral stuff that could have came with that, you know. Yeah, 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 and 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 everyone. I don't know if that's just a cultural thing or a cultural difference, but yeah, I remember that. And and like for, for random strangers come to my house when I'm not there, like, are you are you kidding me? Right? Yeah, and it's like, like, like what's gonna stop them, like walking around, you know, and doing whatever? I mean, yeah, and everybody was just kind of not okay with it. Like, and technically, the benefit that you would get was obvious. Like, oh well, yeah. Sometimes people steal stuff yeah, from your house. Yeah, stuff gets stolen. Um, and so you know, and and essentially that question was informally put before you know, the, the United States at least, hey, would you pay, would you pay random person and, gets to be in your house and they just say they didn't do anything weird in exchange for you never lose a package again. And everybody said, no, I won't yeah, pay that. I don't yeah. think that's a good trade. Like even if we had the person on camera, you know, all that kind of stuff, they said no. Now my question is this, what if Amazon came back like five years from now and said, hey, we're going to have robot delivery people coming to your house? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, not a human, like a robot. Come in your house delivery. Of course, things like they still have like cameras and eyes. They just like film your house and stuff, but but it's not a human. Oh, that's interesting. We, you know, it's a question of it's a question of the belief of the motivations of a human being very varied, versus the idea of the motivations of a robot being very simple, versus the belief that nothing has been sort of done to these robots. To, yeah, yeah. To Amazon has an, or Microsoft has encoded them like to like. Do a quick stand of the apartment. Oh, Jason doesn't have any, you know, flowers in his house. Let's sell him flowers or something like that, you know? Yeah, and, I, and I'm positive they would try and do that. Like, that just, that just feels like a... Very Amazonian thing to do. Yeah, I've been in some weird rooms where things like that were discussed. Like, could we do this? Actually, I remember one. This is something that flopped, and it was for a very similar reason. This was... And I heard now they have systems that are trying to do this. But I basically said... Hey, um, there are a bunch of, especially, you know, older people who want a little bit of help and a little bit of, um, oversight, but they're, they don't necessarily want to leave their house or like they're, they're still living. Okay. But they wanted something to just check in on them. I said, well, look, if you, if you let me put 
an optical camera and a cheap thermal camera together in a housing, and you let me put three of those around your house, I can tell you if you fell down and are now unconscious, if you have, maybe if you've had a heart attack, because there were a bunch of interesting blood-related technologies, um, if you have a fever, you know, if, if, you, if you were starting to get sick in another way, there's a bunch of things that I could basically tell, and so you could hand to someone you, you trust kind of dashboard that says your you know says your conditions or you could put trip wires on there where like if i fall down go ahead and call the paramedics um or don't call the paramedics but call like my emergency contact whatever and i said hey there's a suite of things that i think people are going to want and everybody went over it and basically went yeah but but no no one's going to allow a company to put cameras in their house and then just say trust us we're not going to do anything with that information that doesn't you know that that you don't know about no one will believe that um, I think that's actually changing slowly. Anyway, it was, it was sad to me at the time because I went, no, I mean, we could, we could put all the stuff on board and we could prove that no data was coming off of it. Yeah, yeah, but that's esoteric. You know, how are you going to, what are you going to prove to like people that don't spend all their time thinking about software and, you know, edge computing that you've done this? Why would they believe you? Anything that you say is just going to sound like jargon and they won't, you know, so we didn't do it. Um, but I have heard that those are now sort of in the works. And so maybe perspective has changed. You think that's changed because now more people are living by themselves? Like back in the day, people live like with a wife for a long time, like families close by. But now more people living by themselves, families are spread over the place. It, and, it, and so now they need like tech to like take care of them, so to speak. It's, it's, yeah, it's either more that the need is, in, the need is more intense, so people are willing to do it. Um, or that we have been sort of um, primed by the at-home devices where there's sort of already a thing in your house and you had to believe, as I believe is true, that like they have a wake word and before you say that wake word, they're technically just dumping a buffer, which is true because they don't have the space to store all the, the stuff and you can go and check and like net stat everything and like figure out that, figure out that, you know, uh, things aren't being like exfiltrated from it. So it's like if I were to believe it, I were to believe that we have really good nerds and hackers. So like if, if you, if you sold this to me, you'd be like, look, um, we open source the design and people can, I don't care if you pull one apart and take it down to pieces, go ahead and do that. And I'm like, I know that somewhere in the US, someone will be doing that. And if you're, if you're <laughs> cheating me, we will know because someone's willing to actually pull that down to parts and figure out what every IC does and what every data stream does. Um, and so I'd believe it based on that, but that's sort of, again, esoteric knowledge. So I don't know if, Maybe people are just okay with it because we've slowly gotten there. So, and this thing, it might be something you can't talk about or don't want to talk about, but mm -hmm. you, you just found a new role. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about where you'll be doing this new role? Um, maybe I want to keep that slightly under wraps for the moment. Okay. I am, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be working with a venture studio. Okay. I'll say that. And I love these people and they're fantastic. Um, so... The, the, the role is going to be, I think, a little bit of a, a trial for both of us. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about the venture world is that there tend to be a lot of ways to work. Um, that was always true of like venture studios, startup studios, incubators, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of times people will ask, well, how do companies start? And the answer has always been every way that you think. So sometimes people inside the studio come up with something and they think it's cool and they start to try and find a CEO that wants to run it. Sometimes a CEO will come in and say, hey, I have this really cool idea, but I need 
your tech help, or I'm techie, but I need your marketing help, or whatever, and you sort of incubate with them. Um, sometimes somebody comes in with an idea that already works, and it's like a, a product, and you say, well, I want to scale now. It's only in one market, and it's not that big. Not too many people know about it. I need intense marketing help and a, and a purse string to like pay all my marketing budget so that I can expand to the whole U.S. really fast, win, this, win the go-to-market war. Every one of those was like on the table. You know, that, that, and so I think the, the new role that I have is probably going to facilitate quite a bit of that kind of thing where, um, yeah, where we're, we're, we're thinking about every, every which different way to kind of come up with both ideas and start companies. So for the moment, though, we're still a little bit in the works, so I kind of don't no push on that too much. And we're safe, be safe to say that for the most part, you're pretty positive about the future of AI and how it's going to positively affect the world. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, basically, we're going to, we're going to, it's going to socially get a little bit of a black eye this year because, you know, people are going to say, oh, we tried a bunch of things and they didn't work. And it'll be easy to say, well, that means this tech isn't. Um, I don't think that'll be true. I think some real winners will come out of the companies that just got funded. Um, but there'll be, there'll be some blood in the waters fall off and so forth. Um, but in the long run, yeah, I think so. This, this has the potential to do the thing that we all wanted, which is drive most systems to autonomy and drive the real human cost of like goods and services to basically. My only hope is that we find a way to then share that prosperity because it'll be basically infinite prosperity if we do this right. Um, and I'm very hopeful about that. We'll, yeah, I'll, I'll do everything I can to make that work. Is there any like AI company or AI tools out there that, you believe it's gonna like really make the world a better place that most people don't are not aware of yet. Oh, let's see. So, so everybody sort of knows ChatGPT. Um, there, are, there are more of those. I mean, there's Bard from Google, and um, like I say the name, it'll come to me. There's, there's a number of these. There are also ones that are in the public domain. So, the, so those you can't actually have the model itself and run it yourself. You have to basically talk to the API or the web interface of a big company that, you know. Um, so there are, uh, there was one that I think Meta came out with called, uh, called Llama. Now there's a Llama 2. As I understand, it was sort of leaked originally, and then Meta kind of said, okay, fine, keep working with it. And people have made a lot of, like, fine tunings and derivative models. And there, are some, there are some that are really good that'll basically fit on a home GPU. Um, so the interface of that is going to be cool because as tech continues to get better, we're still even roughly following Moore's law at all. Um, it means that in a year or two, the idea of one of those that's really just yours and lives on your own devices is plausible. And tech, would I say? Enabling tech? How about? Um, yeah, no, I'd have to think about that one. Okay. So, Sean, is anything else that I asked you that it didn't, or anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, I think we kind of hit, we hit sort of all the points that I really wanted to chat about. Um, just thanks for having me on. This has been yeah, great. Yeah. And, and can you give us your social media in case anybody wants to reach out to you? Um, yeah, I'm happy to, although I don't, I'm basically on LinkedIn and I'm on Facebook. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not as, uh, as, like, I don't have a YouTube channel. Okay. So uh, you, can, you can have those, and I'm happy to pass those around. Although I'm Sean Robinson, Sean dash Robinson, PhD. And 
feel free to find me on Facebook if you want. You know, same name. Uh, and I'm told I look fairly distinctive, so there's that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I may after this I may have to um, change that because there's a, there's a number of socials that I kind of don't uh, contribute to that much. But I write articles on LinkedIn, so if you want to go check that out, there's there's a I periodically will make one of those, and they tend to be about the current state or the future state of AI. So yes, and can you give us any last minute wisdom or advice on anything you want to talk about? So I, I think if anything, it's just we have a really good shot here. I mean, I've been trying to basic basically my whole career has been about this, like trying to take that shot at figuring out what I have that could make it so that we get beyond scarcity. This is such a big dream. and Like, this is one of the first times we really had a shot at it. So if we all work hard, we probably will get there. And if you're the sort of person who's good at talking, and you can try and convince people that this is going to be good and we're going to get the good side of this future, then please do it. Because what I know is that we will get that future. I really want it to be the good side. You know, so, so, that, so that's it. Please keep working towards that. And thank you. Ron, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Likewise, thanks for having me on. So listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up. You've got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up.